You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This is future war. This is past. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Do you know who I am? Don't take the ring, Laura. Don't take the ring. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Christine Makepeace. Hi, Mike. Good to be back. Also back with me this week is Mr. John Walker. I want you to know I put seven whole huckleberries in each muffin. This week is a little unusual on the Projection Booth, other than the dreaded Last Action Hero episode, and I guess the Manos, Hands of Fate episodes. We haven't covered many films twice. This is a bit of an exception as we are revisiting David Lynch's Fire Walk with me, as well as talking about the television series Twin Peaks, specifically the third season that wrapped up a few weeks ago. There's a lot of Fire Walk with me that we've already discussed on the show, so please go back and listen to that episode, perhaps even before you listen to this one. One of the reasons why we're discussing the film is because after the first episode we did, they went ahead and put out 90 additional minutes of additional footage that we knew had existed, and it finally saw the light of day. And thank goodness for a fan editor who has reintegrated it back into the original film, giving us a movie of over three and a half hours. Uh, add that to the 18 hours of Showtime's Twin Peaks series, and this episode promises to be at least a half an hour long. So just buckle in for that. <laughs> Christine, what were your thoughts about Twin Peaks Season 3 in general before we get into the specifics? In general, I really enjoyed it. That's with a big fat parenthetical statement of, like, not everything. How about you, John? I guess I kind of came into it being just impressed that it existed at all. I was definitely along for the ride of whatever it was going to be. In some ways, I was surprised at how much it was a narrative with with ties to the original series and a sequel in a lot of ways. And in other ways, I was I was maybe not so surprised that it went off in some other directions and and ultimately uh, ended up being frustrating in, in in some some very key ways. So, what did you guys think about the new stuff that we saw with Fire Walk with Me? And I'm assuming that both of you guys watched the the fan edit that kind of puts it all back together into like one big movie. Yes, I watched the fan edit and I watched the scenes just completely out of context. I can say they're both unique experiences. Um, I ne- wouldn't necessarily recommend just watching the scenes out of context. It, you kind of get lost. I think the majority of the scenes actually help to make a more robust experience. A lot of them are integral to the to the story and make Firewalk With Me make more sense. I mean, not that it 
was completely nonsensical to begin with. I actually really enjoy it and think it's strong narratively as it is. But the deleted scenes add so much more. You see so much more and it begins to take shape in, in not an abstract way. It's a, it's a real linear story. Yeah, I would kind of echo what Christine said, but also just add that adding in those scenes and seeing them in the runtime of the movie kind of pushed it towards maybe what some people in the audience, myself included, were sort of hoping for, which is something that really does catch you up on all the characters or at least give you a moment with all of the characters, it being a prequel. It wasn't really catching you up, but it was giving you this kind of run up to when the show began, where all the characters were. And I think seeing all the little bits added back in just added that little bit more set up to the show. But as Christine said, it also made the movie feel more rounded, at least in terms of being a picture of the town and not just necessarily about Laura Palmer's sad descent. Yeah, I was uh, so glad to finally see everything kind of put back together. I mean, there were things that were just nice to see, like the fight between Chet Desmond and Sheriff Cable or uh, a little bit more of that. And, uh, you know, just there were things that I knew were out there, like, um, I mean, Big Ed and Norma, always good to see those guys together. And uh, to see Big Ed drunk, I was very surprised about that. <laughs> and then, yeah, of course, any scraps of information when it comes to the Black Lodge and uh, even just – it's amazing how much season three – spoke to, I would say, the longer version of Firewalk With Me, especially when it came to Philip Jeffries, and really making Philip Jeffries a character again who had really only been a character in Firewalk With Me, and that we got a little bit more of Jeffries. So it's the, the two, to me, definitely go together so well. I mean, by the second episode of The Return, I was like, oh, this is, this is a Firewalk With Me thing. Like, this is a direct take on that like there's so much information that if you just skipped the movie and went from the original series to the return you you'd kind of be lost i mean the they really leaned into all the electricity stuff which is which is very prevalent in firewalk with me and and i really appreciated it and yeah it's kind of striking to me how many of the deleted scenes really are are very ingrained in the narrative. I mean, some are fan service, for lack of a better word, but like, I like that. I like seeing Jack Nance. I like seeing Norma, but I get why maybe that wasn't there. But there's a lot of stuff about Teresa Banks and about the Black Lodge that you almost feels to me like it needs to be there. So it's really, it is really great to get to see it. Yeah, there's only one moment where I'm just like, okay, I kind of already got this via the narrative, so I don't necessarily need to see it a second time. And that's when they're in, I guess what some people call the pink room, the that really loud uh, club. Oh, God. And you get to see that awesome banner about, like, welcome to America and Canada. What was it? Home of fucking or something? I was like, what? I think the U.S. of fucking A. Yes, thank I, I you. I believe it was the U.S. of fucking A. Yep. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, I, I had heard David Lynch somewhere. You know, he's so opaque when he talks about his work very much by design. He doesn't give much information outside of the work. And people were saying, how can we prepare ourselves for the new season of Twin Peaks? And I remember him saying, go back and watch Fire Walk with me. And it's, you know, I'm glad I did because it really did inform the show. And interestingly enough, there were certain things about the return that did go back and pick up 
some some things from season two, which is that much melange of of Twin Peaks that even David Lynch has seemingly disavowed. But he he still went back and referred to some of the things that like happened with uh, Major Briggs in that time and brought it into the show. So yeah, it was it was interesting how like I said before how much of a sequel the return was uh, in the sense of just picking up some of these direct threads and really deepening the mythology in these very specific ways, like homing in on these things that, that maybe before you didn't know how important they were to David Lynch, but seeing that he went back and grabbed those things really showed that some of that stuff was important to him. So I was saying the one thing that I didn't necessarily need to see was Teresa Banks calling Jock and asking about uh, what Laura and Renette's fathers looked like, because we already got that via dialogue. But that was still absolutely fine. I mean, it was just a few seconds worth of stuff. And I liked that the new version of it, the the deleted scenes, had a lot more just still moments and a lot of moments of looking. There were a lot of moments of Leland that we didn't necessarily have before and a lot of more quieter moments and also some nice moments. The whole thing of them learning how to speak in Norwegian was a really good counterpoint to a scene that, that I always point to as being one of the most horrific scenes in Firewalk with me, which is the hand washing scene. And mm-hmm. just, you know, that we can see the Palmers being this really nice, loving family and having a good time. And that's a great counterpoint to how awful things will get in the movie. I completely agree. And I think that a lot of it speaks to another scene that was removed, which was um, when Laura goes to the Hayward's house and there's that little family scene. And that that to me is a a lost little gem. I really wish that had been in the movie because they refer to the angels that Laura speaks of in the beginning and then obviously comes back in the end. And it really felt like it tied a lot together and it showed like that this this side of Laura, but also this side that she was kind of detached from. Like she was part kind of of this loving family, but she was also on the outside of it. And I, I thought it was really poignant. The one thing with that was the uh, magic trick that Doc Hayward does and the way that, or doesn't do in this case. And I like that that kind of speaks to, oh, I'm trying to remember, Mrs. Shelfont or Tremond, <laughs> her, her grandson, and the way that he is a magician. And then, of course, the, you know, the magician longs to see in the, the poem. So it's nice that he tries to do the trick and it fails. The one thing that I was trying to remember if it was there or not was when lo- there's the long sequence with the painting. And I know that the painting is definitely in the original. But when Laura gets up and is looking at the painting, at one point she moves across and she's holding her arm. And that is a theme that really spoke to me in The Return was this whole idea of the dead arm. And they talk about that in Fire Walk With Me when the waitress, the amazing waitress at the restaurant where Chet Desmond goes to, when she says that Teresa Banks' arm went numb uh, a week before she died. This whole idea of the numb arms, and then, of course, a character named The Arm. I mean, that's uh, it, it was interesting, but I had never noticed that Laura picked up her arm when she was rolling in bed, almost like she couldn't use it. And then, of course, seeing the woodsman in the Black Lodge above the convenience store, that was nice, too. I mean, those amazing woodmen. I'm trying to remember who played the second woodsman, but, of course, Jürgen Proch now with that great fake beard right. was uh, terrific. <laughs> <laughs> After seeing season three, then going back and seeing that scene above the convenience store, it, it really 
it was almost strange. It, it had this odd effect of of being like something I saw in a dream that I then went and saw in a movie or something. It was such a such a a strong image and so kind of nightmarish in that way that David Lynch can generate, especially in this world. And the fact that it kind of deepens the mythology, but also makes you wonder how far back did some of the things that happen in in the return, how far back did David Lynch and, and or Mark Frost have those things in his mind? Like, did he already know what the woodsmen were and he just kind of gave a tease of that? Or in making the new season, did he look back at that scene and say, oh, we've we've got these weird bearded guys. What's up with them? I, I don't know which comes first, the chicken or the egg. I don't know that it matters much, but I, I often wonder, like, how much of that was planned and how much of that was serendipitous? That's one of my favorite scenes in Firewalk with me. So to see these characters show back up, it, it felt like, oh, I know these. Why do I know this? And then mm-hmm. to rewatch Firewalk with me, oh, wow, it was all right here. I don't know. What, what came first? Um, did he already know their entire backstory and then finally get to put it you know, on the screen? Or was it just like you said, like, oh, what, what can I do with these guys? Either mm-hmm. way, it was really effective. And I'm curious, did you guys, the, the painting that uh, Mrs. Chalfant Tremond uh, gives to Laura, the in the room that Laura then enters into inside of the painting, that the wallpaper and the marks on the wall and stuff, that totally reminds me of when we see the woodsmen through the vortex mm-hmm. in season 100%, three. yep. So when they go to see um, Philip Jeffries in in season three and he's you know what he is now when they're walking up to that hotel housing whatever it is it really reminded me of where Teresa banks was staying and firewalk with me i don't know if i was the oh the red diamond yeah it just really felt similar familiar to me i mean maybe it was deliberate or maybe i was just reaching but no i can totally see that yeah i i didn't even think about that did you guys think that the convenience store looks a lot like big ed's gas farm yes I briefly thought maybe we were supposed to see, see that that's what it was, you know, and then it took me a minute to go, well, I guess not. I guess it just doesn't it doesn't seem like it makes that much sense. But it would have it would have been a t- an interesting tie in and it would have kind of lent itself to this idea that we got in season three that Big Ed has kind of been stuck in this weird vortex for the last 25 years. It doesn't seem like much has been happening for for Ed. You know, you were talking about having these kind of things in play for so many years and really Looking at so much of season three and and even Fire Walk with Me, you can trace a lot of that stuff even back to Eraserhead. Like talking about the numb arms. I mean, Mister, um, it's not Spencer because it's Henry Spencer, but but um, the 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 father is talking about how. Fourteen years ago, I had an operation on my arm here. Doctors said I wouldn't be able to use it. Well, what the hell do they know? I said. And, and I rubbed it for a half hour every day, and then I got so I, I could move it a little, and then and I and I got so I could turn a faucet, and and pretty soon I had my arm back again. Now I can't feel a damn thing in it, all numb. I, I'm I'm afraid to cut it, you know. Again, that numb arm was going all the way back to the 70s with that stuff. So, And then even the world in season three where the fireman and um, I don't remember the character's name, but the lady who also is there with the fireman. Senorita something. That totally seems like, you know, one one door down is the radiator lane. Mm-hmm. You know, it just feels like we're in that 
that same world. And of course, you know, the, the tile floor from uh, Henry Spencer's uh, apartment or hotel is totally that same tile floor that we keep seeing over and over again. And that even opens up uh, Twin Peaks season three. It's the Senorita Dido or Dido, D-I-D-O. But yes, th- that world is so worked out, you know, and I wonder all this time that we were calling him the giant and now to know that he's the fireman. I, I don't know how how much that goes that changes my mind about what we saw before but that was such an interesting backstory that seems like it answered a lot of questions when we saw what happened with uh particularly with their what seemed to be their plan to save the earth from evil but it really doesn't answer the question like this notion that Laura's spirit was was generated when they saw the need to fight the force of evil in the world as represented by Bob that doesn't really answer the question as to how that relates to this very psychological, very harrowing uh, psychological portrait of a, a girl dealing with an abusive father. You know, I I often wonder about that, like how much the mythology kind of underpins the human drama and how much it sort of makes the human drama almost seem like an accident of, of these themes and these images that, that Lynch likes to play around with. I have a hard time connecting the two. I almost kind of, for my own purposes, remove that whole scene where that with the Laura orb from my brain. Like, I don't know where it fits in for me, so I just kind of toss it out. Because for me, it's a very human story. I, I've, mm-hmm. I really enjoy the Laura Palmer character. So I'm just like, this is a human story, and this is what it is in my brain. And now when you introduce all that, I don't, I don't know where, where to put it. Well, going back and watching Fire Walk with me after seeing season three recasts Sarah Palmer for me and makes me wonder both in you know how much she is for lack of a better term possessed versus how much is she complicit I mean there's that scene in Firewalk with me where Leland gives her the tainted milk the milk that is going to put her to sleep and then he can go in and have his way with Laura very very premeditated and then at the same time, now watching it, I'm just like, how much does she already know is happening inside of her house? How familiar is she with everything that's going on? Is she – she's not happy about it, I don't think, but is she complicit in what's happening? I mean, because we can sit here and so easily say, oh, well, Leland was possessed by an evil spirit. But really, at the end of the day, this is uh, the story of an abusive father. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what I meant before about that kind of – bifurcation in the story as to what it's really about that it almost seems like bob gives gives leland an out which i don't think really serves some of the strongest points of this story but as far as uh, sarah palmer's complicity i think her whole character seems like a character who's in retreat from the world in some way and she's she's got all these things that insulate her even in the early days before it seems like things went wrong she seems to have this kind of haze through which she lives her life so i could easily see that being something sort of that she has put on herself uh, this fog so that she can avoid dealing with the consequences of what she knows is going on under her roof, maybe because she fears Leland and maybe because she just feels there's nothing she could do. I don't know. But I I definitely think, as you said, Mike, that there's something extra nefarious about her after we've seen her actions in the return as almost some person who's part and parcel of this this netherworld that we've we've seen as what kind of represents evil in the world of twin peaks 
Yeah, and I don't know if I ever if I'd call it complicity, but I <laughs> I ever since the hand washing scene and firewalk with me, Sarah's actions and her words in that scene really inform the way I view what she knows or doesn't know. I mean, she says to Leland she doesn't like that. Like when she and she's terrified for herself and her daughter. Um and I've always viewed that as yes, she does know that there's something more going on. Because she doesn't just say, Leland, leave her alone. It's like there's it, everyone's terrified. So it feels like they're all on the same page. That seems so realistic, you know, and mm-hmm. brutally realistic. I'm really glad with this new cut that we have more of Sarah because I really like her character. And just that scene of her coming in with the cigarette in her mouth and carrying the, the grocery bags. Again, it's like a, this scene of normalcy. And I was just glad to have that there to kind of counterpoint some of the more lunacy that we have. She reminds me of my mom. That scene specifically, it's like, oh, that I I have lived that. Yep. You didn't take the cigarette out of her mouth and start smoking it, did you? No, no. But I'm sure at one point she has asked me to grab a cigarette she was about to drop, so... Again, with more of the convenience store stuff, more of uh, the man from another place, and more of that line, is it future or is it past, which is really going to inform season three. And you know, that's one of the first things when we see the one-armed man, he asks the exact same question twice, is it future or is it past? And that just plays so much into where are we with this? And that the I love that the third season starts with that whole, I'll see you again in 25 years. That was just, I mean, again, how much of this stuff is planned and how much of it is serendipity? Well, when I heard that they were going to be doing this and that that the third season was born of Mark Frost and David Lynch kind of chatting about it, you know, kicking ideas around, I was like, what ideas when it's Mark Frost and David Lynch and it's 25 years later and they already showed, well, Mark Frost didn't, but David Lynch already showed when he made Fire Walk With Me that he wasn't necessarily interested in carrying forward the narrative threads that the fan base, so to speak, uh, was most fascinated with. You know, the fact that Fire Walk With Me was a much more of a prequel than it was a sequel, even though it did sort of sequelize uh, some of the events of uh, of season two of Twin Peaks, especially the the fan edit that we just watched really does come back around and kind of pick up after the end of season two with that interest in just whatever their bliss is following whatever artistic idea they have in mind. I wondered what that conversation was like. What sort of things did Mark Frost and David Lynch say, Oh, this qualifies as an idea for twin peaks, you know, not just an idea for another David Lynch scene or David Lynch film, but something that needs to be twin peaks. When you see the season that we got so much, so much of which didn't resemble the old show twin peaks. I, I really wonder what that process of generating that material was like. Like, why was that necessarily Twin Peaks? You know, all the stuff with Dougie Jones in, in Las Vegas is is definitely informed by our idea of what Twin Peaks is, but it could have been just another film starring Kyle MacLachlan almost. So it really made me wonder, like, what made them think it was Twin Peaks, and what does that, like, did Dave, does David Lynch walk around with all these thoughts and questions about this this story that he wants to carry forward, or did he just see it as an opportunity to kind of play around with some iconography that people were going to be engaged with? And I think he is very interested in that, you know, connecting with an audience, and he does like to have people be interested, but he's he's also, I don't think, interested in the mysteries or the answers to the questions that draw a lot of people along in in this story. A lot of it felt like Twin Peaks fan fiction, which is great. 
That's great. I'm 100% there for that. But it, mm-hmm. yeah, it, and and that's fine. And I I mean, not I know people sometimes don't want to have to have seen other things or read other things to understand the thing they're currently looking at. But I found um, reading the Secret History of Twin Peaks to be really helpful in in navigating season three. Yeah, I totally agree. I actually I listened to the audio version of it, which was, isn't it so good? It is great because it's all like narrated by this unknown narrator but then we get uh tammy preston and that's how we're introduced to her character and yeah to, and then to hear some of the original actors reprise their roles i was really happy about that yeah i listened to the audiobook and i actually got got the book from the library the hard copy because someone had said it was really cool to look how it's kind of set up as you know as documents with you know retracted information and and stuff so i just really wanted to see how it looked and it's it's definitely something that i think i want to own it's it's really dense and comprehensive i was very much debating about when we were going to do this episode because there's that final dossier that's coming out on halloween and it's just like should we have waited another week would this have given us even more to deal with but it's like okay how how much longer are we going to wait is it already too late you know like the the uh the internet which we'll talk about later on the internet is pretty much done with twin peaks season 3 right now and they just they've they've moved on to whatever the next hot topic is mm-hmm. But it's like, you know, we're, we're going to be talking about this for another 25 years. Yeah. You know, it's, we're, we're still talking about Twin Peaks season one, season two, and we're still talking about Firewalk with me that that we had this new version of Firewalk with me come out just last year. And that we have the Criterion coming out like right around now. It's like, yeah, this is still there. There's a lot of weight to it, guys. It just it isn't like, uh, you know, a, a two week expiration period on it. Oh, I agree. I've only gotten through season three once. I've only watched it once. I would like to watch it again, but honestly, there were parts in it that kind of upset me. So I'm like, I just need a little distance. And then I would like to jump back in. And I know that there'll be stuff that I didn't pick up on the first time or something in season two, I mean, in episode two, that made no sense that now seeing it again has a whole new context. Even going back last night and rewatching the first episode of the new season, I was like, oh, oh, I forgot that that person was there. Oh, I forgot that this was there. And then seeing like the, well, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit. First, let's go ahead and take a break and play a couple of interviews. We're going to hear from Claire Nina Norelli, the author of Angelo Badalamente's soundtrack from Twin Peaks, the 33 and a third book. And then we will hear from Agent Tammy Preston herself, Christabel. And we'll be back with those after these brief messages. is Carl Kolchak. He's a reporter. Now that is news, Vincenzo. News! And we are a news paper. We are supposed to print news, not suppress it. With the INS. What's an INS? Independent News Servicer, founded in 1904 by Enrico Peluzzi. Who seems to have a nose for the strange and unusual. Well, last year in Las Vegas, I uncovered a series of murders that turned out to have been committed by a vampire. And what is the Kolchak Tapes? It's a podcast. All about Carl Kolchak. What's a Kolchak? The Night Stalker. And where can you get it? On iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.kolchaktapes.com. As foolish a game as any that Gordy the Ghoul could make up. (laughs) 
Badasses, Boobs, and Body Counts is a weekly podcast that discusses all things Grindhouse, Exploitation, Drive-In, and B-Movies. Your three hosts, Mike. We're, we're going to discuss the Renee Martinez-directed picture, the $6,000. What? Time, Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's the name of the Super movie. First soul, that's, brother. That's the name. When you that's start the movie. Your DVD cover. When you start the movie, the first thing that comes up says. is the title, and it says $6,000. $6, Mark and I've been around a girl stroking a horse's dick. Somehow, somewhere down the line, I'm going to use that clip against you. Shh, do it. <laughs> please do. And listener favorite Iris, the deployment sock. And I'm like, deployment sock. What the fuck is a deployment sock? He goes, you know, you know that sock that you just use. Oh my god, you guys are so gross. See, so it happens for real. People do come inside. We'll make you question your political correctness while laughing at theirs. Episodes drop Sunday and can be found by searching for BB and BC Podcast via iTunes, Lipson, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and everywhere else you can download quality podcasts from. You can also listen to episodes directly from the show's website at bbnbcpodcast.com. Hi, this is Kevin Batchelder. And this is the Saturday B Movie Reel. Shoot it! Shoot it! That's about describes it, yeah. All right, everybody stay here. We look specifically at the Sci-Fi Channel's original movies. You know the ones. The ones that air on Saturday night. Known throughout the ages is an instant classic. <laughs> we need a bigger gator! Uh, limb cutting yes. and blood squirting from... <laughs> Flying limbs, I called them. it in my notes. What could go wrong? We look on a regular basis at the movies as they come out, and since they've been over 200 of them, we do go back and look at many of them that are now out on DVD. By this point, I had completely forgotten any semblance of seeing if this actually makes any sense from a plot point of view. So come on by, get involved, and have some fun. Check us out at SaturdayBMovieReel.com. Our future depends on it. Make it safe. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap, either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now, isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do.
tell me a little bit about you. Tell me, how did you get into writing and specifically writing about music? Well, I um, studied uh, classical music from a young age, um, classical piano specifically, so since I was about eight years of age. And then um, as I got into high school, I I studied um, more classical music. Uh, I was involved with school bands and things like that. And so around when I was, say, 14 or 15, I started getting more into uh, jazz and uh, rock music. So it was sort of moving away a little bit from the classical tradition of things. And um, and that's around the time I discovered Twin Peaks and I became very obsessed with the music. Um, but it was sort of a few years later when I was studying uh, composition, music composition at university, um, that I realized that I really loved actually writing about music and how uh, music elicits certain feelings from us. And obviously, um, I was very into cinema as well. And so I started thinking a lot about how music functions within cinema. And I ended up doing like what we call over here in Australia, my honors year. So like the your postgraduate degree specifically in musicology um, concerned with film music. So that's sort of, uh, in a nutshell, what I've done, as well as being in bands and all sorts of things like that. So music has basically been my whole life since forever. (laughs) I imagine you had to write like a proposal and submit it to the 33 and a third series. What prompted that? I'd actually just moved from Perth to Melbourne and I was thinking, uh, what what can I, you know, I'm starting this new chapter of my life and I'd always wanted to write a 33 and a third book and I was thinking of some different ideas and, um, I actually thought of Smashing Pumpkins and a couple of other bands I really like. And then I was thinking to myself, well, film music is something that I've always just really loved writing about. And there happens to be no books in the series about a soundtrack. And then I thought I was also thinking a lot about Twin Peaks because I think around that time I I started writing the proposal, it, it had been announced that there was going to be this new series. And I thought this is probably a really good time uh, to look back on that soundtrack and its inf- and a little bit of its influence and and how it was constructed and why people still love it so much and yeah because I noticed people were very excited alongside obviously the return of Twin Peaks a lot of people were making comments about oh will Bedellamenti be back and will he write new music and seemed to be a very important part of everybody's Twin Peaks enjoyment was that that original soundtrack. Well, yeah, I mean, when they even were teasing the new series, you would just hear those first two notes of the soundtrack and it would immediately take you back. Exactly. And I even saw some conventions with some of the actors from Twin Peaks mentioning that the Delamenti was back and it sort of elicited all this kind of gushing and and ahhing from the audiences. So it was clearly something very important to people, that music. I have to say that it's a little bit of a... um, a, a big bite that you took because not only are you writing about the the music from the soundtrack, the first soundtrack album that came out, but then you put it into context of the Julie Cruz albums going all the way back to the Badalamente's first collaboration with Lynch with uh, Blue Velvet. I mean, that, while the heart, they're all kind of of a piece overall. I mean, you could even lump in the later works, but really for a period of what, like five, six years, it was just all leading into one place. Yeah. And I mentioned the word cross pollination in, in the book. Um, and that's always what I think about that time period. And I suppose this is what happens when you're writing music, even myself as a composer, when I look at 
different periods of music that I've written, they all kind of feed into each other because you become obsessed with certain ideas or certain sounds. And so it's, it's kind of understandable that in a short period of time with all the projects they were doing, and that's not even mentioning advertising and, you know, things like that, would, they were collaborating on with that sort of that sort of stuff it's sort of understandable that it would all be playing off each other um but it's quite a, a beautiful body of work from say 1986 or whenever it was for blue velvet up until yeah the end of twin peaks there on oh, no, end of firewalk with me which was what 92 yeah that's uh quite a long time and 30 some hours more than that probably closer to 40 some hours worth of content that you're looking at yeah, and so writing the book was, you know, I sort of, as I was writing it, I kind of sort of thought, oh, my gosh, because the th- as you can probably tell, the 33 and a third series, are, you know, they're around 30,000 word limits, and I, I probably went a bit over that. But um, I just sort of started thinking, gosh, I kind of wish I'd had a bigger book to, to, to explore this stuff. And that's – I would have loved to have explored um, Julie Cruz's albums in more detail and then obviously – uh, the latter projects of Bedellamenti and Lynch, like Mulholland Drive, is one of my probably my favourite film of all time, along with Vertigo, and and then Lost Highway, obviously, is another brilliant uh, soundtrack. How did Julie Cruz kind of become the voice of Twin Peaks? From what I I've read, um, she was basically an associate of Bedellamenti's in the New York musical theatre world, when he was trying to find a singer who could sing that um, Mysteries of Love song, because they were looking for a very particular kind of um, vocalist who could sing very high and, and sustained, and it's, it's actually very hard to sing in with the tone that she has in, in that piece. They were actually auditioning a lot of different singers, and Fidelamenti was asking her to find singers, and um, they just didn't have any luck, and Eventually, she auditioned herself and and absolutely nailed it, and so she became the voice of of that kind of sound world, I guess. Can you tell me, you use a term in the book that I really like, uh, that I hadn't heard before, called firewood. Can you describe what that is? That's sort of the nickname uh, Lynch and Bedellamenti gave their technique of, basically, Lynch would have Bedellamenti record these really long, slow, sustained uh, synth string sounds or very sustained synthesizer sounds. And then they'd use that as their like basis to cut up, change the sound, remix, that sort of thing. And so they could just sort of form new pieces from all these uh, different pieces of firewood, essentially. The music for Twin Peaks, the soundtrack, uh, not just music music, but the sound effects, I mean, it's all... It's it's wall to wall in almost every single episode, and especially with this new season of of Twin Peaks, the sound design really is almost taking precedence over any sort of standard, for one of a better word, standard sort of scoring. Tell me, uh, what were your impressions of the new season? I've just sort of given it another re- rewatch in the last week or so, and I it sort of I remember when I first was watching the the maybe the first four episodes, I was thinking to myself, this is so sparse. There's barely any actual music. It's more sound design. And I think that has a lot to do with David Lynch and his collaboration with his uh, music supervisor, Dean Hurley. There seems to be like quite a lot of Dean Hurley's compositions in gathering from the end credits. And also I've noticed he's got an actual album out with a lot of his sound pieces for Twin Peaks. It took a while, and I remember reading a lot of people sort of almost complaining that there hadn't been any Bedellamenti yet, but I feel that when Bedellamenti has been used within the new Twin Peaks series, um, it's been for really emotionally weighty moments, and I think that's served it really well. Yeah, when Laura's theme 
returns. It just hits you. Yeah, it's interesting how that's been used, actually. I was thinking about it, and from what from my notes, I gathered that it was about four times it's been used, and it's quite str- like strange occurrences. Like Obviously, when Bobby cries and sees her photo in that uh, that episode where they're talking, making reference to her murder, that seems like a very obvious choice there. But then Andy, that moment Andy's waiting uh, for that, was a farmer guy, <laughs> you know, when he was waiting at Sparkwood and a bit of, twi- of Laura Palmer's theme is played then and it's sort of, you're kind of going, what's the reason for using it there? You know, is there some connection to Laura Palmer? or uh, And so I'd sort of try to make all these connections with why they would use that old theme. What was it like for you when Lynch kind of opened up the archive and did the whole uh, anthology resource uh, release? It's just wonderful. And for the book I just wrote, I can't imagine how I would have written it without having all that context and being able to see just how much music was written because I watching the series again while I was writing the book and really just making pages upon pages of notes about music usage, I was really able to see how um, the themes, the different themes themselves were varied and changed. And I don't think when I initially started watching Twin Peaks, I probably was um, aware of that because I was probably just paying a lot of attention to the narrative and the music was I obviously enjoyed it but I just didn't notice a lot of the subtle subtle changes that they were had made and and having something as wonderful as the archive it just makes you aware of how clever all the scoring was in that show for example like I, I didn't even notice sometimes the instrumentation had changed and just sort of seeing how a certain synthesizer sound might be used within a certain context those little things that I just never noticed when I first watched it. Going all the way back to things like Eraserhead, I mean, the, the soundtrack for Eraserhead is amazing because it's kind of an ambient plus jazz score, the Jelly Roll Morton kind of going in and out of the, the world of the rest of it. But as Lynch would progress, there would be those moments where the world would stop and we would have a pop song. Those moments in Twin Peaks where the world stopped and we would have a pop song, especially... James Hurley's pop songs. What was your impression of those moments? I controversially never had a problem with that James Hurley song. <laughs> like most most people I know uh, couldn't stand it, but I actually thought it was quite a, a beautiful moment in Twin Peaks when I first watched it. Um, I didn't see the, the issue with it, but I think I feel like that when Lynch is using those older songs, there's probably a degree of nostalgia on his behalf because I'd imagine that that was music he heard and during his formative years and he's got an emotional connection with that music. And then it seems like whenever it is used, there's something emotional happening or it's almost like uh, sort of playing off something that's there's more humanity on screen as opposed to some of the more um, mythological sort of aspects of Twin Peaks. Did the music change and evolve as the series went along, especially series one and series two, were the themes kind of adjusted for different characters or did they just stay pretty consistent from the beginning? They stayed, um, musically, they stayed the same, but often the treatments would change. So they might start using a different combination of instruments or um, say, instead of a saxophone playing the lead, there might be a clarinet, that kind of thing. And then obviously there was new themes um, written for different narrative 
So, for example, there's like a theme for Evelyn and James when that plotline came about. So new music was being used. And then as I wrote in the book, uh, Laura Palmer's theme sort of began to evolve to underscore different situations. But it it was almost a a way to create a constant within that show and always a reminder to the audience that Laura Palmer is never far from our minds when when watching Twin Peaks. Can you tell me about uh, the way that the music is... It's almost diegetic, but at the same time, it's not. There are times where people seem to react to music when it may or may not actually be played. I'm thinking specifically of the Dance of the Dream Man when Agent Cooper's snapping his fingers after he's awake from the dream. Yeah, yeah, there is a lot of that, in, especially in the original run. You think that something is actually happening on the soundtrack, and then you become very aware that it's actually happening within the narrative, like uh, another scene that makes, makes me think of is when Bobby and Shelley are in, in their car. I, I can't remember what they were doing specifically, but there's a piece of jazz playing and you think it's just the background music, but then Bobby comments like, oh, turn that music off, I can't stand it or something. And then they change it to um, some more kind of sort of rowdy kind of country rock <laughs> and they're sort of really into that bluesy country rock. And, yeah, there's moments like that. Another one is uh, Audrey Horn uh, when she's in her father's office. There's the, the Audrey's dancers playing, and then you realise she's actually got it playing on a record player, and that this piece of music exists within within the Twin Peaks universe. What was it like for you when Audrey's dance returned for the new series? I was pretty excited by that because I, I love that piece of music, but it was also yeah, I was also trying to to work out what was going on because I was thinking, is this, is this really happening or is this still, because obviously there's been so much speculation about is Audrey in some sort of um, state of lockdown mentally um, or, you know, is she alive or is this a dream? So I was kind of paying a lot of attention to the narrative and just sort of looking at the crowd and things like that. So, but I really enjoyed the return of that piece. Definitely. Well, we talked about how the world will stop at times with a, a song, and the new series was really pointing that out with those roadhouse moments. What were those like for you, seeing the roadhouse and then especially the musical choices that were happening there? Yeah, well, I, I really enjoyed them, and I, I think and I'm still sort of looking at them and, and making notes because I think the lyrics that a lot of the artists are singing and um, are really pointing to the bigger aspects of Twin Peaks and I often I was thinking today that those bands almost form like a Greek chorus in the sense that they're commenting on on what is happening within an episode and and within the the whole series at large so I'm trying to pay a little bit more attention to them now and trying to see if there's a connection to be made between the choices of all the performers and I'm just curious if that if that um, roadhouse world is actually real or what's actually happening there I've sort of been thinking a lot about that lately actually obviously episode eight where the roadhouse isn't at the end because it seemed to be the the end of the episode that episode eight with the nine inch nails being where they are and then the use of the uh the hiroshima music and that that theme comes back consistently is amazing the the penderecki piece yes yeah, I've noticed that, and it seems like it's almost a little bit remixed at times, like used for the glitchiness, um, especially with those, I don't know what to call them, the, I call them the little woodsman sort of helpers um, when they're sort of repairing Doppelkoop and things like that. I've noticed that little snippets of 
you can hear just that sort of string dissonance in the in the background. I haven't heard Doppelkoop before. That's pretty awesome. I, I won't claim to have come up with that. A couple of people I know were calling him Doppelkoop. There's been a few different ones. <laughs> or Mr. C, I think is the, the, the correct one. <laughs> Coop, all spelled out in all caps, like yeah. Bob was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to separate out your writing of the music and then writing about the sound effects. I mean, the sound effects were just remarkable in that some of those seem to be instrumental as well. And that's something I definitely want to explore more because I've always um, written and researched music that is a little bit more, for want of a better word, conventional in terms of notation and uh, structure. Like, you know, when you can analyze a piece of music and say, here's the melody, here's the chord progression. But sound design is almost a different world because you're talking about, yeah, it's just it's just a very different way of um to to write about sound so that's something i'd love to explore more especially with this new series because i think the sound design that predominantly has been come up with by dean hurley and david lynch is is just so amazing so we've talked about so many things and when you look at the soundtrack for twin peaks i mean the 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 meat of the story the 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 cover photo from your book it's 11 songs but it's so much more than that. And it just must have been so difficult to focus on that and to even try to make that the, the heart of the matter. It really is. And that's, that's what I actually did, to be honest. I did struggle a little bit trying to, trying to keep it um, you know, focused on that soundtrack because there really is so much to discuss about it. And I actually, when I went to pitch the book and started writing it, I didn't really realize how immense it, it really was, um, especially when you start looking at the archive and obviously there's a season two soundtrack and then then there's the Firewalk With Me soundtrack. So there's, there is quite a lot to write about, but I did try to keep it at least focused on that soundtrack release just to keep me centered. Otherwise, I could have gone on so many different tangents. Well, how did you even try to approach that as far as your research went? I rewatched the whole series and I took absolutely crazy meticulous notes and I highlighted different themes when they came up and on my notes and I tried to find connections and then it was just a matter of how do I break the book up so that I can explore different sounds and I mean for me an obvious choice was to have a chapter solely dedicated to the the cool jazz of Twin Peaks because obviously that works on a lot of our associations um you know in terms of film noir things like that and then for me uh the crux of Twin Peaks of the way that it's it sort of um all unified is, and you know both thematically and musically is Laura Palmer and her theme so I definitely wanted to have a chapter dedicated to that and then I thought it was important to um, do a chapter sort of about Angelo Badalamenti himself and what how um, he came to write all this music and what what was in his compositional background that informed the way he wrote Twin Peaks. To be honest I had no idea about his history and that he had written pop songs and was actually pretty uh, pretty well received when it came to that. Yeah, it, it's amazing how prolific he was, or still is. Um, I knew a, a little bit about his background, but actually doing this and actually going down a little bit of a, a rabbit hole of of his previous work, some of it I had had no idea about. And he's had the most fascinating career, and I'd love to know more about it. But um, with the research I did, I could only find certain things. So because that was sort of what I wanted to do with this book was not only explore Twin Peaks, but sort of. I felt like not enough had been written about him as a composer. You know, a lot of people write about Bernard Herrmann or 
John Williams and, and people like that. And I feel like Bedellamenti is a composer that deserves a bit more celebration. Yeah, outside of Twin Peaks and, and his Lynch collaborations too. He's done so much. Lynch's relationship with musicians is just such an ever-evolving relationship in that he seems to get more and more into music as time goes by. Yeah, definitely. And I'm so fascinated by his approach to music too. Um, I'm always really interested in hearing people talk about music who aren't formally trained um, because obviously I grew up studying classical music and I went to classical music school and, and I've always been around musicians from that formal background. So I love it when I get to talk about music or read about people talking about music who haven't been trained and so their approach is so different and David Lynch it's it's almost instinctual the way he responds to music there was one point where I was watching the new series and realizing that I think almost everybody in the Blue Rose task force is a musician I don't know if Kyle MacLachlan plays an instrument but almost everybody else I mean Chris Isaac of course I mean everybody Miguel for sorry I can never pronounce his surname Ferrara was he a musician yeah, he actually played on a Keith Moon album. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> I had no idea about that. And then, of course, the granddaddy of them all with David Bowie. Yeah, okay. Oh, wow. That's an interesting connection. I didn't, didn't notice that. <laughs> yeah. How long did it take you to write the 33 and a third book? Oh, I actually had to do it fairly quickly. I, I got notification in November. that. So I think I did it in about five or six months. Yeah, it was a very quick turnover um, because we wanted to put it out this year, um, so I had to write it very quickly, <laughs> um, but which which was fine with me because I kind of it meant that I could just fully, you know, I I just sort of had a pretty flexible work schedule because I'm a music teacher in afternoons over here, so I basically just spent the day doing the research and I'd go to the library sometimes and just lose myself in it. So I kind of like that I work better to to those sort of time frames. It's so in-depth that I would have thought that you had spent years working on it. I, w- I would love to actually uh, do another, maybe another book about Lynch and Bedellamenti and the, the music in Lynch's films and, yeah, maybe give it a couple of years so I can fully explore it. <laughs> can you tell me a little bit about how Laura Palmer's theme is built and the multiple sections of that particular composition? Yeah, so um, the way I sort of analysed it, I based it on a Bedellamenti interview I saw where he was describing the different sections. There seems to be sort of two, predominantly two parts. Obviously, you've got that dark introduction and then uh, the section that could be called the love theme. So the the dark introduction is sort of those two two notes which are kind of ominous and and they're often used in the series when you know something sinister is happening or um, the, the circumstances around Laura's death and life is is discussed and then obviously you've got that second section um where the the music sort of rises and it sort of keeps rising and it reaches that climax and then falls back down and that was often used in sort of emotional uh moments i notice that sometimes often like when it hit that climax the a character would start crying or something yeah it could get pretty saccharine sometimes it did but yeah it, it was very um extreme emotions definitely but that's sort of a David Lynch does that a lot, doesn't he? That climbing, 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 and never knowing when it's going to hit that top note is just amazing. Yeah, it is. It is. It's beautiful. Obviously, we talked a little bit about Julie Cruz as being kind of the voice of Twin Peaks. What was it like for you when she showed up in The Return as well? 
to be honest, I think I was so consumed by what was happening in the TV, the actual narrative about, um, you know, I think that was after, yeah, that was when Cooper had actually um, put his hand out to Laura and started, you know, walking through the forest with her. So, um, and then, you know, so the episode ends up abruptly with her screaming and I was just so caught up in that moment actually that I went, oh, wow, it's Julie Cruz now. And I absolutely love that song. But like I said, I was so caught up with this idea that Cooper had gone back in time and that night of her death and, and sort of was in the process of saving her. You know, I have to say that I appreciate the way that you went through the pilot um, and talked about how the music played in the pilot and that you mentioned the show ending with, uh, I believe, Sarah screaming. And it really kind of ties back to the overall series, just the way that the third series ended with that scream again. But, uh, you know, Laura at that point. That amazing Cheryl Lee scream. <laughs> I was watching it the other day and um, my mother was over and she walked in just when that scream hit. She was like, oh, <laughs> like, I said, oh, that scream is just so visceral. It really hits you. Yeah, I really noticed with the new series that Lynch was playing with the music a lot or, or, or Dean Hurley was. But like hearing, even just hearing familiar themes but played in a different way or hearing things like I want to say during Audrey's theme, like we started to hear things go backwards, which was just really put me on edge. Yeah, over the credits, because while she's dancing, it sounds okay, and then it's sort of cut off abruptly, and then when they start playing the end credits, that music comes back, but it sounds almost like glitchy, just as much as like, there seems to be this glitchiness in even the imagery in, in you know, when it's anything to do with the Black Lodge, so that sort of suggests that there's something awry with Audrey there. If you get the, the Blu-rays or something, you can sort of have a look in detail. But I, was, I, I think it is intentional because there seems to be like, for example, when they go through, uh, what was the name? There was like that portal um, where the, the Jack Rabbit's palace, you know, they, they start, the images start glitching a bit. So it always seems to suggest the change between the two worlds or, or the transportation between two worlds. There was even a moment where Tammy Preston was reaching for a uh, doorknob in a hotel and the picture glitched out by her hand and it was like, well, that's interesting. I didn't notice that. I'll have to re- revisit it. But yeah, it is a bit hard when you're streaming and you're not quite sure. <laughs> is it Lynch or is it just your, your uh, Wi-Fi connection? <laughs> even when uh, when Doppelkoop, to adopt your term, when Doppelkoop spoke very backwards, I was like, did I just hear that right? Yeah, yeah. I didn't even notice that, to be honest. I'm I'm really bad with that kind of thing. I, I think I honestly do get distracted at times by music and I'm more listening to the music than the dialogue. And so that's why I'm really enjoying rewatching it because I'm actually picking up on stuff that I kind of missed the first time around. Well, reading your book has really made me appreciate like going back now and rewatching the series, even the, the the third season, and trying not to listen to the dialogue and trying to just listen to those music cues and try to figure out what am I being told via the music that I'm not being told via the dialogue. That's what always interests me about film music is um, trying to make connections. And obviously, sometimes it's just nice to enjoy it for what it is. But sometimes I can't help but you know start making connections and and try to imagine what the composer is trying to say there and. Is it hinting, especially in a show like Twin Peaks, where there's so much to decode, whether you look at it, you know, from a mythological way or if you're looking at the numbers, a lot of people get really caught up in numbers and the numerical kind of significance or the numerology in in Lynch's work. And I sort of 
do it with music. I go, well, why is that piece there and, and what's it trying to say? That's what I find really fascinating. You get into the theory, but you don't beat me over the head with it so I can actually understand what you're trying to say, which is wonderful. That was my hope because that's the hardest thing about writing about film music is because you're trying to write for people that are interested in film as well as music. And so you've always got to sort of straddle that line and be mindful that not everybody's studied music. So that was definitely what I tried to do. So thanks for that because that's that's a great compliment. Thank you. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I really like those uh, images of the actual music itself and when you're boxing the notes and pointing out those things. Even that you pointed out that everything is uh, being done in C minor so that the pieces will flow together very well. I was like, oh, okay, that makes more sense. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that was something I didn't even realize, like I said, until I started analyzing the music. And I was like, oh, they're all in the same key. So that makes it all kind of mesh together and be mixed together. And yeah, so it's an amazing journey for me just discovering how rich that score was. Well, what are you working on these days? Like I said, I'm a music teacher, so I'm just doing stuff with my students and I'm just working on a few different ideas for just potential books. And then I actually contribute um, a column to uh, the Movie Notebook website. So um, I've been doing that since mid about mid last year. And yeah, I basically contrib- con- sorry, contribute um, a film music column, plus a bit of music gigs on the side, different composition stuff. So Yeah, I I, um, just do a lot of music-related stuff, basically. did you get into show business? I, I'm trying to think of a, of a time, you know, when, when my sites were trained on anything else. I, I think it was pretty early on, and I, I might be, you know, as dramatic as to say, my mother's a singer, and she, she tells me that she sang to me in the womb. Music was definitely a part of my existence from the jump, like from the, from the very, very beginning. And I, I've always had just this really beautiful, positive association with music and singing. And, you know, just from that kind of place of pure expression. And then at, at some point, you know, that transitions into, let's, I guess, say show business, because that's kind of how you get to do more singing and and have more of that expression in your life is you know when you make it your craft and your vocation which I did from a from a pretty early um, stage in my life probably around like seven years old I was doing like theater and just singing because I just loved to do it and performing because it made me happy so it was it was a it was a very early not so much a choice, but just lifestyle, uh, you know, decision to, to be a musician, to be a singer. 
And then I guess that segued into show business because what else, you know, do you, I guess you can, you can do a few things. My mom actually, she, she had a, a business delivering singing telegrams. I don't know if that counts as show business, but um, so there are ways that you can, you can be a musician and be a singer, maybe on a, in a, in a private, in a private sector. Would you say that? I don't know, but she was doing that and, my parents had a recording studio uh, they, where they did jingles and, and voiceover and ADR and Foley work and all kinds of things. Also uh, recorded albums and creative things of that nature. But music and has always been in my life and continues to be my addiction. <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, I, I really, I think I'm kind of, I'm a lifer. I don't think there's anything else that I will ever do with my with my life as far as my main passion I do have now a, a few other things that I'm very passionate about and a few other business endeavors even but but show business as they say I guess has my heart and likely always will so you grew up around recording equipment you probably are pretty comfortable with the microphone then yeah, that's like, that's home. That's home for me. It was, it, which is, you know, at the time I, I had no idea what a remarkable experience to be utterly immersed in, in the industry of recording and, and, and music because I was just, you know, my parents were at the studio 13 to 15 hours a day. And it was like, it was, so consuming it was just that's just the business and it was I just wanted to get out of the studio <laughs> but but then of course I, I came back around later in life and I just want to get back in the studio but at the time it was like that was that was my world and that was my home and I was very comfortable around studio equipment and you know I, I definitely count that to be uh, a blessing at this point in my life and uh, throughout my career because I think the recording studio can seem like a a cold and sterile place for some, you know, glass and steel and wood. And, you know, it's not necessarily meant to be warm. It's meant to be uh, sonically effective for, you know, your, your, your various needs and projects. But, you know, I, I've, I've always felt very comfortable in that setting and environment. And so sometimes I think nerves that a lot of people might, get from, you know, being in the studio and having to kind of channel, you know, uh, inspiration in a place that kind of seems so sterile. That's never, and I'm just making this up that other people think that, <laughs> but maybe I've heard it, maybe I've heard it somewhere a time or two, but it's, that's not my experience. I, I, I'm, yeah, I really, I love being in the studio and it has very positive associations, even the ones where I just, was begging my mom to go home. Even now, those have become, you know, nostalgic and 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 precious because they gave it all to that to the studio that we had, and and it definitely shaped my my life and and who I've become. When did you start working with uh, Eight and a Half Souvenirs? Pretty much right after high school. Uh, I moved to Austin, Texas from San Antonio in hopes of just finding a more, you know, fecund environment for creative expression. Uh, there wasn't a lot going on in San Antonio for someone in my position, you know, I was looking to be in bands and, and do shows and, and, and just kind of 
um, cut my teeth on, on, on something. And there wasn't a lot that was exciting to me in San Antonio. And San Antonio is a wonderful place, but Austin, Texas was very, you know, close. And it seems to have, from my perspective, a lot more going on uh, in the, in the, in the areas that were exciting to me. So I moved to Austin, Texas as soon as I could. <laughs> and I was actually wanting to be an, an actress because I had landed this, you know, unusual uh, gig of, of being in a Chinese Western film, Kung Fu film. And I, I thought that, oh, you know, even though all of my experience up to that point had been in music and had been so dedicated to music, here I do this one just bizarre film and I think oh you know maybe maybe that's the life for me uh so I moved to Austin just really just wanting to just expand my horizons creatively and um thought I might get a job as a cocktail waitress at some you know fun bar and then and then you know do my auditions I mean this was all just like it was I was just making all this up as I was going along but it sounded romantic and there was a bar that I really wanted to work at and it was this beautiful place with a grand piano and I was trying to get a job as a cocktail waitress there. And I was like, Hey, you know, actually I am, I've never actually had a job as a waitress, but <laughs> I've been a musician all my life. Maybe I could, you know, I could lean against the piano in a, in a, in a sparkly dress, sing a few songs every Thursday or something if I get the job. And, and the woman was like, okay, so you're a singer. She was like, honestly, you know, we don't really need a waitress, but my husband's in a band <laughs> that's looking for a vocalist. So why don't you try that? And if it doesn't work out, I'll see what I can do for you here. But, you know, I've got a feeling. So that band was eight and a half souvenirs. And it was the hottest band in Austin, Texas at the time. They'd lost their lead vocalist. They'd been looking for someone for a long time. And I auditioned and I, I got the gig. And, <laughs> you know, I, I never looked back. Uh, and that was, that was in 1997. And I had the most phenomenal experience in this band of just insanely talented musicians that were doing great music. Um, you know, as far as expanding my horizons, <laughs> that was achieved and then some, and I, you know, I, I, I didn't know how just insanely fortunate I was in that moment to land that gig. And so, you know, honestly, much later in life when you can look back with perspective and, uh, and I, I really, I had a, I just, I just scored. That was <laughs> such a great score on so many levels and, and the wonderful way to, uh, to get, you know, out in the world. And we had, we, we were working a lot and were signed to a, uh, RCA Victor a record deal. And I was, you know, on tour. We had radio shows in the morning and record in stores in the afternoon and shows at night. And I was in heaven. And I, 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 I learned just, it was like, I, I call it my university. I did that, you know, when all of my peers pretty much were going to college, I, I joined eight and a half souvenirs and it was um, a tremendous gift remarkable education.
Well, I do want to back up a little bit and ask you how you got involved with uh, Once Upon a Time in China and America, because, I mean, how does that happen? It, well, it's unusual to do a U.S.-China co-production, especially at that time. I mean, it was right before the handover, I believe. So Hong Kong was still pretty uh, booming market. So I'm just curious how you got involved and what your experience was like, especially if you got to work with Sammo Hung. Boy, did I. Um, well... Uh, so I, I had done you know, like an indep- uh, an independent film when I was like 16 years old for this gentleman named Gordon Delgado, and it was like you know it was all it was all shot at night, not because you know all the shots were at night, but that's when you know we could get the equipment, and it was super guerrilla style, and and everyone on that production worked really hard, and it never did anything or went anywhere, and Gordon Delgado. He appreciated how much everyone put into it and, and did his best to, to reciprocate in the way that he could. And he was the art director for Once Upon a Time in China in America, number six, because they were using people in Texas, in San Antonio specifically. And they had, and they, you know, before they would bring in their Chinese crew, their Hong Kong based crew. Many of the people were from Hong Kong. I think a lot of the extras uh, were mainland based. Gordon Delgado, was the art director for for this film, and he just kept sneaking my picture into uh, the casting director's file for the only character that I would possibly be able to play, uh, and it happened to be an, an, an Indian, a Native American woman. And I kept getting taken out of the file because I'm like maybe four inches taller than Jet Li. And it was a love interest, uh, ostensibly for Jet Li. And, and it was just, and I was, you know, I'm whatever it is beyond white, like it can see through my skin. Like I'm, I'm so light. And it was clear, it was, you know, for a Native American person. And this was kind of before, like, you know, whitewashing was a thing. Thank God. I was so young. I would have had no idea how to deal with that. But anyway, also digressing. Um, so I, 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 Gordon Delgado kept putting my picture back in the stack for this Indian uh, woman character. Finally, I guess Samuel Hong himself is looking through the pictures and and comes upon my picture and says, this is the girl. And apparently, I resembled one of Quanta Parker's most photographed daughters. And this was Samuel's idea, if I may call him Samo, uh, his idea of, of, of what this character would look like. And even though I was really not right in any way, uh, he, except for this idea this, that he had, he brought me in and I did an audition and I got the part. So from there, I got a script. You know, I, I, if you could see me, I would have script in air quotes. Uh, it was, it was a working, it was a script in progress <laughs> and the progress happened daily and really it was just just unusual experience of being on a set nothing not that I've had all that much experience now but but I think this was different than it usually is but the filming happened in Del Rio Texas and and I was painted this kind of reddish orange brown color and put in a buckskin dress with this human hair wig like down to my you know the small of my back and and just kind of fashioned to look like what the Chinese would envision an Indian woman to be and I have these scenes with with Jet Li this experience is unfolding <laughs> and and I'm working with Samo Hung and I could tell you stories off the record at a different time but 
Simo Hung worked in his way. And I, I thought that he didn't speak English, but it turned out he actually spoke perfect English. I found out in another circumstance, but he was, you know, I don't probably have to tell you because you know who he is, but his, the choreography and, and this, you know, the way the scenes were approached from the Kung Fu perspective was like poetry. It was stunning. He's, he's, he's a master. As far as the acting <laughs> was concerned, you know, I would get directions like, okay, now just act ellipses. And you're like, oh, okay, do I have any, what's, you know, what happened before this? And no one can really, you know, it's all, it's lost in translation, but I don't think it was ever found before it was translated. It was just like this unfolding moment where we're in costume and we have a script you know, that we got, you know, minutes before we were shooting. And it was kind of to fill the space in between these, you know, mystically performed Kung Fu sequences <laughs> that would get maybe 40 or 50 takes, you know, and we were, you know, we just kind of were doing something to fill the space in between. But, you know, when I saw the the film, I, I, I thought it was Great. You know, I thought I was thoroughly entertained, but I, you know, I knew that where their emphasis was, was, was the Kung Fu and the acting, not so much, but it all, it all worked out and it made a piece of art that I'm, that I'm proud to be a part of, but uh, yeah, an unusual experience to, to say the least. When was the first time that you met David Lynch? I met David Lynch not so long after filming the Kung Fu film, maybe maybe 2000, maybe 99. It was before I was even emailing. I tried to even look (laughs) and go back to get the to get the, the, the dates straight. But it was around 99 or 2000. And I was still with Eight Not Souvenirs, but I'd been with the band for a few years at that point. And I knew that. I, I was looking for the next chapter in my in my musical life, the next incarnation. And my manager at the time was a man named Bud Prager. Bud Prager was this East Coast hardcore music manager who had sold like a hundred million albums in his career. And his management company was working with ANF Souvenirs, but Bud was not because Bud loathed jazz but eight and a half souvenirs was kind of this little thing that kept getting a buzz and kept having interesting things you know would happen for eight and a half souvenirs because we had this really kind of rabid fan base with you were into us you were super into us and it was a swing scene and it was just like it was really what was going on but he just he wasn't having it because his world was rock and roll but he did come see a show in new york and kind of, and Bud kind of gave me the classic, like, you know, it's the band. I want to represent you and, you know, let's, let's see what we can do together. And I was, of course, like, no way. I love my band. You know, we're going to be huge. You just wait and see, <laughs> you know, and then, and then of course, you know, things change and, and the band did break up for because bands do. And, and I said, you know, Bud, are you open to seeing what we can do together? And he said, yes. And, so eight and a half souvenirs was definitely in some unknown territory. We didn't really know what was happening. And Bud was really actively looking to get me into the right meetings and to connect me with the right people. And Bud hadn't had a big hit 
since Foreigner. And Bud really enjoyed being on top. And he wanted an artist that would take him there. And he was investing in me. Bless his heart. Like he, and he would even say, you know, Christabel, our chances are slim to none, but you know, and closer to none, but we're going to try. And so he pulled the favors that he could, and they were significant because he was Bud Breaker. And, but he hadn't done anything in a minute, but he had a track record. So people would take his calls and he made a call to CAA and got me 15 minutes with Brian Laux. That was significant because Bud really thought that the key to my success would be to have me be on camera um, and singing. And he thought that that was my strength. It wasn't, you know, as far as he was concerned, I wasn't writing hot blooded <laughs> and I wasn't going to, you know, going to make it from that angle. So we had to try something else. And right at that time, Ali McBeal, you know, was on and Vonda Shepard was like killing it. And so Bud was like, okay, let's see if we can get you something like this. And Brian Laux was, was infamous, this amazing agent who was known for straddling the film world and the music world. And he had, you know, himself a phenomenal track record. But what we didn't know, Bob was really hoping for a miracle. And we didn't know that Brian Laux was the, the key to one particular castle, which was David Lynch. And if Brian thought that you and David might work well together, then Brian is the only person who could actually make a meeting happen. And when I say only person, you know, there might be someone else, but but classically, Brian is the one who's introduced David to Lucky Lee and Karen O and Rebecca Del Rio and just the people that David has responded to as far as musical collaborators, I would say 99% have been brought through Brian and maybe some now through Dean Hurley as well. David's not, he's doing so much that he's kind of got these other facets like Brian that, you know, he counts on or can count on to bring him possibilities. I was brought in as a possibility and Brian had an intuition that David and I would, would work. And of course, he, Bud is like ecstatic <laughs> because this this thing is like, you know, could be a really big deal, but, but first I have to meet David first, and then we have to see if something can happen. And then I did meet David and something did happen. We did hit it off, but then I was signed to RC Victor. And so then that was the next miracle that had to happen was getting me unsigned so that I could work with David. And that didn't happen for years after our initial meeting. But I think I'm kind of jumping around, but, but this is how, this is how this all happened. It was, it was Bud Prager who got me the meeting with Brian Laux and the two of us, the three of us, Brian and Bud were uh, introduced to David in his studio. David heard my demo and David wanted to write a song together that day. And we did. And then we ended up a brief decade later with, uh, with an album. <laughs> And then almost 20 years later, uh, we would, we would, you know, take other creative endeavors together. But yeah, it's been, it's been a long journey and it started with Bud and Brian. Now, I know your music was used in Inland Empire. Did I read that you were actually in the movie at one point? I was filmed to be in the movie. Yes. But 
as David would say, it did not have the support of nature. And this David filmed me singing three songs. Those three songs were uh, held by the third songwriter who didn't give permission for them to be used. So those songs, so I was not an Inland Empire. And, you know, and, and once I'd released that I would be a part of it and kind of went through that whole, you know, personal, emotional roller coaster, David called me and said, uh, Dean Hurley has exhumed a song from a hard drive that I don't remember us ever doing, but it's absolutely beautiful and I want to put it in Inland Empire. And I had no idea what he was talking about. I flew to Los Angeles and he played Polish poem for me. And all in the memories of, of making the song came flooding back. Yeah, that was how Polish poem got into Inland Empire. Dean Hurley found it buried in the hard drive in the same, you know, time frame that David was sound designing and making a soundtrack for Inland Empire and Polish poem. Yeah, so it was that did have the support of nature. <laughs> um, but me being in the film did not. So yeah, that's that's how that's how that worked. At some point he approaches you to be Tammy Preston, but the Tammy Preston character exists in Mark Frost's book, The uh, Secret History of Twin Peaks. Are you part of the world before that book even gets written, or where do you come in in, a, in this timeline? Well, some of this is information that, that has been requested to remain mysterious. And so I'm, I may not be able to share some of this because I am very conscious of, of, of how, you know, <laughs> this this entire world has unfolded being, you know, having a bit of a shroud over it. And, and that's, that's at David's request. And, 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 but part of, you know, these things have to be considered that even though the process, you you could dissect it, right? You, You could, I could give you every shred of information that I have dates and things and how they came together. And when I found out about this and when David asked me for that, but it's not indicative of, what Twin Peaks requires as, as, as a, as a living, breathing entity, you know, like it, because there's a lot of dimensions that are, have things happening that are working together that create more than, than these, than these details. And, you know, I know that I'm sounding dramatic or whatever, but like, I can tell you that there were multiple things happening when Tammy was forming, when David was figuring out that Christabel is Tammy, when Mark Frost was writing the book, when the audio book was happening, there were just, it was like this, forgive the, it was a, it was a vortex. It was a vortex of things that were happening that were, that were, you know, universally conspiring to create what happened. And, and, and the truth is, I don't, I don't know all the answers to, 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 you know, I know what Christabel was, was dealing with and handling, but, but how, you know, David, even at the time that he approached me initially, he didn't even tell me, he didn't say the words Twin Peaks. He didn't say the character name. It was this like very gentle awareness that was brought to me about something that was happening that started in conversations that David and I had 
years preceding, you know, when he would, you know, finally say her name. And it's like, I don't even know. It's, it's hard to explain. And it sounds like I'm being pretentious, but, but like, I, 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 this is something that goes beyond, you know, like hard dates and hard facts. And when this happened, when this happened, and they don't really accurately paint the picture of, of, of how this entity was, was taking shape. It just, it just doesn't. So I, 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 I respect David's request for many things to be mysterious because it's misleading. I totally respect that. And no, I'm not going to ask you minutia, you know, what did this mean? What did that mean? Any of that kind of stuff. Uh, that's not my game on this kind of stuff. So, um, sure. but I am very curious what you felt like when you finally did come to that realization when the, when the, uh, the, the, the ink dries on the contract or whatever, that now you are part of this Twin Peaks family. It is something that is an ongoing process. Like you, it, it happens in stages and the stages are far from complete. And I don't know, I don't know that they'll ever, I mean, it's just like, it's just in ever in motion. But, but when, you know, from the, from the point that David is like saying, you know, I, I have this, I have this idea, Christabel, that you, are going to be a part of a project <laughs> and you know, like, okay. And, and, but there's a look on his face and in that moment it begins. Um, as far as, you know, me having an inkling of, of what it's going to feel like in my, in my body and in my being to be a part of, of Twin Peaks because he hadn't even said the words. So it started, it started there and then, you know, but, but then it's like, I don't, is, is it, is it big or small? Is it the, the part? Am I, is it, is it music? Is it acting? Is it what? No questions are answered <laughs> for a long, long time. So you're just left with, you're just like, just only this like possibility, this inkling and, and, but utterly encased in mystery in a glass box, if you will, of, of unknowns. And, and you're just kind of there sitting with that. And then there's a process of, of Twin Peaks happening or not happening or David directing or not directing. And still, I know nothing. And then, you know, you get to the, you know, the ink drying on the contract. Then you get to the script being in my hands. Then the understanding of, you know, that Tammy Preston is a big part of, of this thing, you know, and, and like, and then you're like, wow. Okay. Uh, um, and, and then, you know, all of your, my own fears and insecurities and my overwhelm of, of, am I, can I hold this? Can I do, you know, like, what is this? you know, how, how is this really happening? Um, it is. Okay, wait, no, this is really happening. And so you're, it's a flood of emotions and you can't, you know, you can only share it with people around you so much before they're just like, okay, 
enough already, <laughs> you know, but, but in, and a lot of the process is happening on different levels of consciousness too. And it happens like in your, in your, before you go to sleep, you know, you just kind of have this like, wow, I'm going to, I'm in Twin Peaks. And then you're like kind of in that place in the, you know, what that's like the theta, you know, brain waves when you're just like, okay, I'm, I'm going to be a part of something that, you know, also for me personally, I, I watched Twin Peaks when I was a child. It was a very big thing in my life. It was a, it was a agent of awakening, uh, you know, for my little being and my consciousness, maybe a special agent of awakening. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Um, okay. But you know, like, okay. So all of these associations and all of this like popular culture, you know, gravity, gravitas of, 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 of this, of this Twin Peaks entity. And you're like, okay. And then, so then at some point you just kind of can't, you just, you have to just set it aside and then just be with it and you, you know, just be with it. And, and, and be grateful and be excited and be in a space of awe and wonder and curiosity and then just give it all that you have and do the best that you can and know that you've been chosen by David to be a part of this and it is a part of your destiny and, and you just accept it. If you don't, then, then there are repercussions to that that aren't intended. David does it really and he thinks that you can do it. So, so you can, <laughs> you, you, you can, because you trust David and you believe in David and, and you believe in, in the faith that he has in you. And, you know, you believe in yourself and that's a gift that you're given because if you, you, you don't, you don't want to not believe in yourself because then that's almost, that's disrespecting the gift that's been given. And so you're set up, you know, in this very high and positive, um, I, you know, like a vibration that, that where Twin Peaks resides and you just have to like expand yourself and be capable. And then, and then you are, and then, and then you have the growth that comes from that. And then it's just, you know, this thing that keeps um, bringing, uh, infusing new things and new awarenesses and new excitement and new fears and new growth. And it's, just you know continually happening and this is you know even outside of just being able to watch this series as a as an audience member you know that's a whole different level how did it feel it i'm still i'm still finding out i'm still i'm still in it i don't think i'll ever fully wrap my head around it um but i'm enjoying the process thoroughly even the parts that are super challenging I can look at it and know how much has come from this experience and and be just profoundly grateful did you get to see things before they aired or were you watching it at the same time that everybody else was the latter I, I saw I saw nothing <laughs> I didn't see playback I didn't know even as it was happening I um, was completely um, experiencing it along with everyone else in the same way. Now, I know that you've done acting before. We talked about that. But I don't want to call them training wheels. But you you were amongst probably two of the best actors uh, that you possibly could be when it came to this, having 
Mr. Lynch himself and Miguel Ferrer right there with you almost at all times. I know. I know. I mean, uh, God, I, I know. I, I, I don't, I, I marvel at this equally. Um, you know, as people from the outside might look at it, I'm, I'm right there with you. I, I was, I was like, you know, of course, when David told me that I'd be working closely with Laura Dern, like I had my own just like stand girl breakdown, uh, and you know, like full on like toddler squeal, and and he's and he's just rolling his eyes. But of course, he like understands, but he's you know, and he actually, you know, I, I won't say that he rolled his eyes because I think that he was happy that I was excited. And if he rolled his eyes, it was with loving with, you know, in a loving gesture, (laughs) but maybe the extent of my, of my squeals may have been tiresome, but anyway, so, you know, being able to work with someone like that, you know, just kind of focusing on Laura Dern for just a moment. um, was like almost hard to be in the moment because I'm just like, She's so, I'm just, I'm just like, I'm such a, I'm watching her and I love, you know, I love to be around people who are just so marvelous at their craft and, and then to understand that I am actively participating, <laughs> you know, in, in, with them as they are, you know, so, you know, being what they are and shining as they do was just, you know, like it was, a, it was just a big wow. And, and then to be able to be reactive to what, to what's happening um, and, and work with that is, is, yeah, it's, it's just, you know, it's indescribably satisfying and fulfilling and horrifying to feel like you're going to be, you know, compared or contrasted or, um, you know, considered in the same, you know, thought forms, no pun intended, but, um, you know, like you're, you're just giving yourself to the moment. And, and as far as David is concerned, like, I've been around David for 17 years now, give or take. And so it did take me a few years to just be totally relaxed around David. But David, you know, is the one I'm most relaxed around of all of them because our, our repartee, you know, we've, we've just kind of, we've had just this, a, a really wonderful opportunity as we've made art together and music over the years to become pals and to be, you know, comfortable around one another. And so he was, you know, kind of <laughs> being around him was easy, but, you know, and eventually being around Miguel Ferrer was easy because he was so warm and made me feel so welcome. Um, larger. And I was pretty much starstruck the whole time. Um, but, but, you know, but that was to be expected. Um, but she, but she was just so much fun and so easy to talk to and wonderful to be around. And it was so lovely to see her, dynamics with David because they're so close and they have this wonderful just like thing together it's just so lovely to watch and then then to watch them create together it's like you know it's does it you know David Lynch and Laura Dern like does it get I'm sure there are you know comparable you know directors with with you know, actresses on, you know, these, these extraordinary levels, but to be in the room with that happening, it felt like it was this kind of moment, historical 
for me, like, it, it, you know, and maybe for everyone, <laughs> um, you know, like it was just kind of beyond. It was like they, they're just two exceptionally wonderful people at what they do and they make magic together and they create, they create art for humanity. And, and yeah, to be on set and in the same scene is just like, out of control it's out of control (laughs) but it was so much fun and I held space and I did my very best to be Tammy and and to to be in those dynamics in a way that that um was I I you know I hope received well it was received how it was received but I I gave I gave everything that I had to the to the equation for sure and then it then it has life of its own but but I but I was, um, I felt super grateful, super excitable, and really satisfied. And then, of course, blown away for all the other things. But overall, just like an experience that just kind of, you know, will resonate within me um, as a as a artist and as a human being. And um, in general, I just, yeah, I got a lot from that experience, to say the least. If it makes you feel better, years ago I spoke to Miguel Ferrer, and he was talking about that scene when they were shooting with uh, him and uh, Cal McLaughlin and David Bowie. Apparently, David was as much of a fanboy about David Bowie as you were about Laura Dern. So, oh, yes. I mean, I, I love seeing when David... Okay, so David... The way the, the, there's only a few times I've seen him be a, be a fan, and strangely, it's been around musicians. Well, not strangely, but it was around a drummer named Jerry Brown, who's like this unfucking believable drummer who came into the studio to do some session work, and he also was super into into uh, Reggie Hamilton, who's an upright bass player, bass player, and I think. That's it's always fun to see David like get that big smile on his face <laughs> and get super excited to to be around someone. And I can just imagine David Lynch and David Bowie together. I mean, yeah, that would be that's a really that makes me super happy to even have that in my <laughs> in my thoughts. And I appreciate you telling me that story. That makes me really happy. Now, from what I understand, there were people out there that didn't like your character, and I don't understand why that would be. <laughs> oh, yeah, there were, there were, well, and I mean, passionately, passionately disliked Tammy. Um, the good news is, is that Tammy, I know, could care less. Uh, Christabel, Christabel had some feelings initially, but... But then it was like, well, there was a couple of things, but it was like people so vehemently, passionately disliked Tammy that it became like a thing, like it became a thing, like an identifier. It's like, um, and when that happens, I can't help but think that it's, you know, in its own way, it's a, a strong feeling that's <laughs> that's being you know brought forth, and I can't say that I haven't done my job if there's if there's a strong feeling one way or the other, and I don't exactly know what my job is, frankly, but I got to kind of you know initially like the, the level of vitriol was 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 like kind of like 
was it was impressive. <laughs> Eventually, it was just like, damn, these people really, really are not liking Tammy to a degree that um, that that seems like it's it's now a parody of itself. So after it kind of broke to that level, I could kind of disassociate it with, you know, my personal feelings. Like it was like, okay, people are having these feelings. And you know what ended up being the saving grace for me was like, there was a few like parts um, and a few performances on Twin Peaks that people were just like, hated and I thought were like mystically beautiful and when those things happen when I can see that people just have their feelings and people feel what they feel people are triggered by different things uh and and it's really like it's it's just that's just it that's just people going through their processes and being able to express their opinions and, you know, fuck it, go wild. If you want to go to Reddit and this is where you're experiencing, you know, some of your, some of your life and where you're deriving some kind of satisfaction from expressing your feelings and opinions about Twin Peaks and their characters, then, you know, then, then, then great. Then it's, and it's sparking something that is bringing something to your life, whether, you know, it's, it's cradled in negativity or positivity, you know, adulation or vitriol, whatever it is, you know, go for it. And then I can like separate myself from that because my experience of Tammy and my experience of, of, of Twin Peaks is, is mine. And, and, you know, and, Hey, everyone's, <laughs> everyone's entitled, or they certainly feel like they are. Um, and at the end of the day, I'm like, you know, I got, I was in Twin Peaks and David wanted me to be there and David thought I did a great job. And that was, that was really the most important thing. And so from there, you know, from there, it is what it is. But there's been, there's, yeah. It's been divisive, Tammy. <laughs> oh, Tammy. But yeah, I, I, yeah. Were people giving you shit about your walk? Oh, yes. Yes, they were. And, <clears throat> you know, and not only the walk, but then like, you know, the objectification and the whole like thing. And, and then when I would, bring my perspective about the walk, you know, my words are taken out of context and then like, you know, twisted, you know, the whole thing. It's like, I'm almost, it's like, it's like, oh, wow, I guess I'm, it's, it's fascinating that I'm now at the level when people care to twist my words and put them in quotes and then make a meme. Like on some level, it's like, you know, wow, whatever it is, I would rather it be <laughs> something different maybe, but you know, it's, yeah, I don't think you get to choose these things. Um, but yeah, I mean, and, and I'm, and I, I've said it before and I could share it again. I, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with celebrating the feminine form. And I don't think when, when, when Gordon Cole and, and, and Albert are, looking at Tammy walking away that there's this like 
you know, seeing her as nothing but, you know, a, a, a wiggling bottom. They are appreciating this, this, the fullness of this woman and all of her power and all her feminine beingness and her big fucking brain and her ability to put things together and her no bullshit attitude. It's like, why do you separate all these things? Because you're also celebrating her form and her walk. It's like, but, but I, I, I see things differently and, and I know that perspective is triggering, but I, that's, that's my, that's my thoughts on the subject. <laughs> and I, to have my walk immortalized in Twin Peaks, did I think once of that being a negative or borderline or a, a slightly offensive thing? That never occurred to me. That's just from my perspective, from who I am, from my own place as a person. I didn't think that that was negative or negative to women uh, as a gender or any of that stuff. Now, I'm sure someone could sit with me and just give me all of their points and I could be like, oh, gosh, I see from your perspective. I understand what you mean. Um, but when I'm speaking as Christabel, I, I just, those things didn't come to me as far as my own, my own place of, of, of experience. I, I didn't have those feelings. Other people did. So again, everyone is entitled <laughs> to, to whatever, you know, opinions they have. I, I celebrate it. Um, and I have my own as well. I don't really like talking process too much to, to folks because you, everybody's got their own thing, but I do have one question when it comes to that. When you and David are looking at what what the audience is seeing is is Albert and the um, I can't remember the character's name, but the 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 woman who he's having dinner with, and you two have the biggest mm -hmm. smiles on your face. What are you either <laughs> looking at in real life, or what are you looking at in your mind's eye at that moment? We were actually looking at the two of them having dinner. Like I know that sometimes you do reaction shots, but we were we were all in the same place at the same time, and the and the camera was trained on us, but we had just been experiencing that moment in real time. Um, so that was that was what we were doing. But I think where the joy was coming from, it was kind of like. I can speak for myself. It was just like a, a needed release of like all of the energy <laughs> that, that you're, that you're feeling by being on set and, and needing to everything to be on schedule and everybody's desire to make something. So, you know, um, so well to make twin peaks, like, so, everything, <laughs> um, you know, like, so when David and I had this moment, when we got just kind of got to connect as, as Christabel and David, but it's as Tammy and Gordon celebrating Albert, it was just kind of this collusion of all of these different things erupting in, in, in a, in a, in a joyful um, moment um, that was layered. You know, it was a release. It was um, my gratitude. Um, it was his, you know, at a girl, it was us looking at, you know, Albert's character, finally, you know, kind of making the love connection and, and, and adding a new layer to this character. 
And so I, I think it was all of those things. And, and then, you know, just to be around David is, he's just, he's, he's fun and he creates a sense of wonder. <laughs> and, and so it, all of it was just, it was all of those things. And, and, and there's, there was a moment when David shared with me, um, that he had felt that joy is much harder to deliver as an actor uh, in an authentic way than sorrow or fear. That joy was trickier to to bring forth, um, and I'd always remembered that. And I'm not, and I'm, I don't, and I'm not saying his exact words. And I don't even know at what point in life he told me this or what the circumstances were. But because I remembered him saying this, I, that was the scene in the entire script that I was most concerned about pulling off because it was joy. And, and I remembered David, David saying, you know, how, how tricky it was to really capture that in a, in a, in a way that was believable and, and, and pure. And, and then I, and then when it was finally happening, I was like, okay, I, I get, I need to create joy while standing next to David in the midst of filming Twin Peaks. No, this is not going to be a problem. <laughs> this is, this is, I got this one in the bag. Like maybe of all of them, this is, this is the one. And, and then, and then we got that moment. What were some of your, if you can talk about them, what were some of your favorite memories of working on the show? Just uh, being and getting to know Miguel was was super special and such a gift uh, you know now i mean it was it was even so then and then and then you know to to understand you know how you know beautiful of a gift that was on on the next level um was kind of like you know uh yeah i i to have been blessed with the connection uh, on on a personal level, just to get to know him and to know his personality and just what a great guy he was and how funny he was to be around and how gracious he was as far as like you know telling me <laughs> giving me giving me some hot tips on you know how to act on set and not act but like how to be on set and what to do after a scene was over. I mean, yeah, the Chinese film I did was twenty years ago. And it was nothing like anything, and there was no actual acting to speak of. This, this Twin Peaks was my first experience of anything of this magnitude, well, or anything small, or I like I've just never done anything like this. And and sometimes it was painfully obvious. And Miguel would say like, "Okay, yeah, no, we're actually they've we've wrapped the scene, so you can probably if you you know if you want some food, go get some food, or you can go to your trailer, and then they'll let us know you know what's going on next." So I was like, "Oh, oh, great!" You know, because I was just kind of standing there, like looking around, right? And so he would, <laughs> bless his heart, he would he would you know he would let me know what was happening, and then you know he'd run lines with me. He would he would tell me stories about about, you know, Los Angeles in the beginning, Hollywood in the beginning. He'd tell me stories about his mom and his dad. And I'm just like hanging on every word. A, his voice. B, oh, yeah. he's, you know, right. Okay. And then, he, and then he's like, <laughs> got these unbelievable stories, you know, and his mom is 
Rosemary Clooney, you know, like, and I'm just like, and he, you know, he's playing drums for Duke Ellington when he's 17 years old. And I'm just like, you've got to be kidding me. And then, and then, you know, then we get to act together. And then, you know, every opportunity that he had to be like, Hey, Christabel, you know, cause he knew that I was just terrified. He'd say, you know what? You, you did a great, great job with that line. I'm sure glad I didn't have that one line. I was like, come on, <laughs> you know, like really like, but he would see that he would, he was just like, he was just a really great person. And, and, you know, and it was, yeah, this thing, you know, on top of everything else, meeting Twin Peaks. And then I got to, you know, be pals with Miguel. And that was, that was really something. Well, you don't seem like the kind of person who sits still for long. So what are you working on right now? Did I read that you're out touring? Yeah. God, I would love to sit still. Jesus, that would be so nice. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is not the time for sitting still or sleeping much. But um, yes, I am. I'm going. I've already had a tour. Um, I was on tour while Twin Peaks the meet, you know, in the middle, uh, I was on tour for all of June and then I'll be on tour again in November. And, um, that is, I, I, you know, I, that's my, that's my, my heart's passion is performance and, and being on stage and with, with, uh, with the, with the music in the last five years with this train and somewhere in the nowhere, both produced and written by David, co-written by David, and then now my latest release, We Dissolve, produced by John Parrish. Um, th- this, these, uh, you know, these tours have taken me now to about 32 countries and all kinds of performance venues, performing arts centers, theaters, um, old cinemas, galleries, <laughs> like uh, all kinds of unusual places because of the nature of the music and and how it's, you know, moody and cinematic. And I do like full on kind of experiences. I like, oh, I hope that, that, that's, that's the, that's the goal. But, um, I like kind of theatrical concerts, but also like a, a bit of, um, performance art involved and definitely a high drama stage presentations. <laughs> all around the world um in unusual locations this is what makes me really really happy and it but it's it's a lot um to organize yeah but it's it's like so worth it but it's it takes everything i've got it takes all that i am <laughs> and then and then on tour it's just it's exhausting it's cathartic and overwhelming and fulfilling and it's 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 full it's full spectrum and I live for it um, and I hate it and I love it. And it's, it takes everything I have and I don't have much of a social life, but, but I do go to a lot of shows that I'm in. Are you uh, out on the Twitters much? I'm on the tweets. I'm on the tweets. I did that. I've, I've gotten more in the tweets and less in the Facebooks, more in the tweets. And then, you know, Instagram is just, it's just addictive. And I, I have to, like, I have to, you know, regiment myself. Um, it's like, it's, I have to do it, but then I have to step away. You know, this is new world. This is new world stuff. This is like, this is strategy and, and, and artistically approaching a social reality, um, 
strategically and artistically approaching <laughs> and, you know, stumbling along the way and figuring things out as you go. And, but I, I spend a lot of time on my, on my site, Christabel.com. And I, I kind of give my, my juiciest bits to my membership um, aspect of that site. And I do blog posts and, and offer unreleased music. Um, and this is also a tremendous effort to keep updated and vital. But I feel like as an artist, we have to be full spectrum. Um, and so I do, you know, I put all of my energy into the performances and to um, the uh, social representation of my art and my music and my, and my personal entity. And then I, and I give my, you know, like, um, personal takes on, on, uh, you know, behind the scenes tours and, uh, my, uh, you know, my personal take on the interrogation scene with, with William Hastings, you know, like these things that I kind of put into a place I call my vault on my, on my site. I'm trying, you know, you're like, you're looking to, to encompass as much as you can from a visceral level when I'm on tour and from a, a from a um, virtual level so I can connect with people when I'm not physically present. So, but this is like, it's a beast. It is, it's a, it's a beast. And I'm, I cannot say that I'm controlling the beast, but I am doing my best to like be present in all of these realms and it's it's uh very interesting it's very interesting but um i don't know i don't know where i was going with all of this but i just wanted to share with you that yeah that's it's it's touring it's my website it's it's the tweets and the and the grams and the and the facebooks and it's trying to bring it all together as artfully and um efficiently <laughs> as i can and and that's what my life that's what i that's what i do that's my life We were back and we were talking about Twin Peaks. So yeah, let's dive into season three proper and talk about that. So I was saying that I didn't necessarily pick up on that the the glass box. The, I love the glass box. 
the just that whole se- sequence. I didn't necessarily pick up that. I think that's what we're going to call Judy inside of the glass box. Is that kind of what you guys were thinking as well? Yes, and especially after um, you know listening to that Twin Peaks book, definitely a hundred percent. I feel like I got so much out of that that experience. I don't know anything more, and that's fine. But I feel like I understand more, <laughs> and I definitely <laughs> feel like that's. That's to me, I, I interpreted it the same way. And um, I know a lot of people that hated all that New York stuff and, and the glass box. I, I don't know. It just added a richness to the universe for me. Well, for one thing, we were outside of Twin Peaks. And for another thing, it was so early in the season that it, you really were still kind of scratching your head, wondering what this was going to be. So to me, it's it's almost akin to what you were saying, Mike. It's part of those things that y- you forget were even part of this incredibly rich tapestry that the season turned out to be and in those first couple of episodes you might have thought we would be coming back to that location or seeing that glass box again or dealing with it in a much more specific way rather than a kind of thematic way and then yes being able to connect the dots back to that what that being in the in the box was and how it was conjured up and why it might have appeared there none of those questions are answered but we do have uh, tips and clues that we can kind of follow and it just feels so thematically sound that this evil manifests itself and that it killed those those young people in the way that it did it just feels like david lynch was kind of reminding you uh, of the menace that he can conjure up and that that sense of dread and that sense of just all hell breaking loose i forgot just how many people die in that first episode i mean between those two young people uh the uh the well the dead body in the apartment building plus you know the the head plus Major Briggs's body, and then um, the principal's wife gets shot. I forgot that Evil Cooper is there and shoots her, and then that he – well, I'm counting episode one and two together because they're still edited that way. And then the one woman who's helping out Evil Cooper when he brutally murders her. I mean, yeah, just so much death happening in one episode or – two episodes it's just like okay we are and then setting up so many mysteries already like setting up who's the head who's the body what happened with this principal being able to follow that through setting up the fireman giving cooper the clues setting up cooper in the other world and trying to escape and you know what is going on with this evil cooper and just so many things all in one one episode two hour uh, block that it just sets up everything for the next 16 hours after that. And yeah, the the pacing of that New York scene, the glass box scene, that is one of those things that I think was almost a litmus test for people now visiting Twin Peaks for the first time and just seeing if they're able to take that type of pacing, because that is something that is very part and parcel of Lynch's world and that we got more of in that edit of fire walk with me that we have more of those quiet moments of just people looking and people sitting and it can frustrate the hell out of people but i absolutely love it i I remember i was struck by more than anything else struck by that when watching the, the season three premiere just how it sits and breathes and how so much of television isn't really like that um so just these long slow shots of just unwinding and how how you can just really sit and be in how comforting I find that. And I I was like, I don't care what happens. I'm 100% in just based on that. Well, it instantly felt like 
oh, I, I get it. We're going to be tuning in for the David Lynch hour every Sunday for, for 18 weeks. And I was like, okay, I'm all about that. I'm, I'm fine with whatever this is going to be because it felt so, so suffused with David Lynchiness. And since I never knew if he was going to make another movie or anything. And, and I, I mentioned earlier that I was sort of impressed at how much he did go back and do some of those fan servicey type things that you were talking about, Christine. But just picking up in this story and realizing that we are in a world where for 25 years, Dale Cooper has been the evil Cooper that we saw at the end of, of Twin Peaks, the show, and that he's he's basically taken on this sort of Steven Seagal-esque badass image and and just to see Kyle McLaughlin playing that character and I at the time I sort of thought oh we're going to get some delayed gratification with Dale Cooper I didn't realize how delayed but it was so fun just to be thrown in and see something that was simultaneously absurd and hilarious and kind of scary in the form of Mr. C or Dark Cooper or Cooper's uh, doppel, doppelganger or whatever we want to call that being it was it was so I, it, yeah, it was just like, oh, I'm here. Twin Peaks is back. I'm, I, I can't believe I ever doubted this was going to be enjoyable, you know, and I just settled into it. And then seeing as that evolved and we saw how much Kyle McLaughlin had to do in terms of different shades that he was playing. But that instant image of just that guy and instantly getting, oh, this is what he's been doing in the world for the last, you know, two decades plus. It was it was hilarious and scary at the same time. And the introduction of him with that crazy fucking song that plays you know the famous david lynch the headlights on the highway uh, or on the road shot taking so long and with that music just pounding over it and when we get to finally see him it's like oh wow and when he gets out of that car and moseys up and just hits that guy in the face with a shotgun talk about just a really great moment of satisfaction and then also all those amazing faces you know we, we we've compared lynch to fellini before the way that he loves to cast great faces and going into that little shack or whatever that it feels like the guys from uh, blue velvet would have stopped by there on their way to ben's you know and just going inside of there and those great faces those amazing people that that one woman who's like it's a world of truck drivers <laughs> <laughs> and even the two young attractive people that he leaves with have their own sort of grimy sleazy quality to them you know it, yeah it's just a it, you're right great faces just faces you don't see anywhere else. And it's nice we kind of get like a little, uh, you know, uh, Tarantino reunion with uh, Jennifer Jason Lee and Tim Roth uh, as Cooper's right, uh, right-hand man or right-hand man and woman. Sometimes they were a little, uh, they were chewing on the scene. Oh, I loved it, though. <laughs> For the most part, I really enjoyed them, especially their whole love of snack foods was fantastic. Well, wasn't that almost a Tarantino riff the whole time? Just the fact that they're these kind of wisecracking hit people who talk about fast food. I mean, it, it felt sort of like it was winking at that idea. I don't know if David Lynch does that. I don't know if he if he refers to things and winks at them uh, as much as people might think that he's doing. But that felt like it was it was definitely it reminded me of all those fast talking uh, hitman movies of the nineties that were picking up the, the Tarantino mantle, but here's a very sleazy backwoods version of it that resolves in a, a, just a, a great scene of mayhem. <laughs> you mentioned, you know, how good it was to be out of twin peaks a little bit. And I mean, that was, 
I'm trying to think if in the original seasons, uh, other than James leaving on his motorcycle, if we leave Twin Peaks very often. I mean, maybe some telephone calls with Gordon Cole, but for the most part, we are in the city. Whereas with season three, we are in New York City, we're in Buckhorn, South Dakota, we're in Las Vegas, and then points in between. So just, uh, it was nice that the world gets a lot bigger rather than just staying in Twin Peaks and exploring that amazing place that we're able to go outside and well and then of course we get New Mexico as well which I mean I don't know if I'm even ready to talk about episode 8 <laughs> because that is that was the moment for me I mean because I was happy with the first 7 hours of Twin Peaks and then when the 8th hour happened I pretty much lost my mind I was just ecstatic yep. Oh, it was, it's gorgeous and, and mesmerizing. And that's for me when I was like getting a racer head and feelings, just lots of vibes. And, and, and it, it seems like such a natural extension of the, sh- of the show and what we had been shown so far, but it, I had no context for it yet. I was still kind of like, what, what do I do with all of this information? And yeah, still, I don't know if I know what to do with all of it because it's so there's portions of it that are so literal but some that are so abstract like i feel like i'm being told explicitly what this is but i i don't i don't i don't understand yet um i thought it was amazing yeah it was just the craziest thing i've ever seen on television and i don't know that i'll ever see anything like that again especially because i don't know if maybe this was a a one-time thing given the fact that as much hype as it got and as much it got uh, written about and you know people podcasting about it it was not a huge rating smash for showtime at least from from the accounts that i've heard and i i just wonder if this was like the one time you're going to see someone like david lynch given complete creative control for something like this and if so and that's how we got episode eight of twin peaks the return then i'm i'm fine if that's all we got you know if this never happens again we got that glorious piece of television and you said it you could watch it again and again and probably find something different every time and it's nightmarish in the in the best way which is really one of the gifts that that he has when he's when he's firing on all on all cylinders is that he can tap into some primal fear at least for me, that just sticks with me. Some of the scariest stuff I've seen has been in David Lynch. Yeah, the original Twin Peaks gave us so many moments where I was like, I can't believe this is on TV. Like all the way from, what was it, the third episode when Cooper has his dream, and you're just like, what am I watching right now? I've never seen anything like this, and I doubt I'll ever see anything like this again, other than in parodies, right, with Mike Myers dancing around like a dwarf. <laughs> or uh, Scooby-Doo, um, the, the Mysteries, uh, Mysteries Incorporated, which was amazing, and actually had Michael uh, Anderson on that one. But And then the murder of That's Maddie Palmer so was another moment. It's it's so brutal. Oh, I don't know the, how that was on television. Even watching it now, it's, it's still like, wow, people sat – Sat and watched this, huh? <laughs> and then, of course, the final episode was just another one where it's just like, oh, my God, like all that time spent in the Black Lodge. It's like, what the hell am right. I watching? <laughs> well, I mean, it's the it, it, it's the, the, the visuals, of course, but also the sound design is so sickening. Uh, I think it was actually on your previous episode about Fire Walk With Me, Mike. The, you played some audio from the scene where Leland kills Maddie. And just the audio made me uncomfortable. I mean, it really made me – it's that slowed down mixed with – then it goes back to normal speed and he's crying. And the undercurrent is these weird low rumbling sounds. It always sounds like air coming through ductwork or something like that in his 
his movies and I was listening to it on headphones, of course. So it's just, yeah, it's, it really is that scene in particular is, is still very upsetting just to think about. But if you actually see it, you, it'll, it, it blows your mind that it exists and that it was on ABC. That's one thing I think I really kind of missed out on with the new uh, season is just watching it. I mean, you know, televisions are televisions, but my God, I wish I'd been able to see all 18 hours in a theater because there are so many moments where it's just like, like that uh, eighth episode. Can you imagine sitting there and flying into the mushroom cloud in a movie theater and the sound experience of that music that's playing and the sound effects and everything that I mean, this Twin Peaks season three was a theatrical experience that, unfortunately for me, was shrunk down and put onto a television mm-hmm. set. I would almost like to marathon that whole thing in a movie theater. I mean, can we? Can we get that <laughs> I'm sure. I'm somehow? sure somebody will do it at some point. <laughs> there were times I watched it all with the closed captioning on because that's how I watch television, right? And there were so many times where the captions would th- say things like "low hum," <laughs> "wind mm-hmm. whistling." And I would turn up the volume as much as I can, and I'm like, okay, I kind of hear that, but I really, I'd like to watch the whole thing with headphones on, and where I could maybe play with like the levels a little bit better because things like that beginning part of season uh, or of episode eight, where uh, the woodsmen come out and they repair Mister mm-hmm. C. I mean, I was just like, what the hell is happening? Because it was so tough to see on my television set. And, you know, I've watched it a couple times now just to make out more to see what the hell's going on in that scene. Yeah, it was a great cinematic experience, which after Twin Peaks aired, I didn't see it uh, for, you know, a decade or something, maybe until it came out on DVD. And I remember going back and watching the first season of Twin Peaks and being impressed or just it still seemed very cinematic and it it reminded me that maybe that was one of the innovations why that show felt so special when it first came out was that it was very cinematic and you were watching it on network television. And I think that's true of the return as well, but there was something about it that David Lynch seemed that he was really in some kind of conversation with television and the idea that prestige television, as they call it, has really become one of uh, it's almost usurped movies in, in the sense of this is where grown up stories are told, you know, so it felt like the fact that it was television did seem kind of important to it to me. The fact that I did have to wait a week and that I did have to – I mean I was kind of making an appointment to watch it. I know that nowadays we don't have to do that, but I was watching it as soon as I could. So it did sort of bring back some of that old school feeling to me of when the original aired and you sort of had to be there. If you wanted to be part of the conversation, you had to watch it when it was coming on. Um, and I, so I don't know. Something about that really was a, a, a part of the experience for me even though it was painful some weeks having to wait for for another hour. Well, I completely agree with that. It felt as cinematic as it was, and I completely agree. Um, that it did feel episodic. It lent itself, the story lent itself very well to the chunks that we were given. Um, and, and I appreciate that because a lot of TV now, I find just kind of one episode bleeds into the next because we are marathoning them. We are watching two or three at a time. But I, I did appreciate the fact that, like, okay, it's Sunday. I'm going to watch this for an hour, and it's going to be exactly what I want. And it's going to leave me wanting more, and I'm going to wait a week. It felt like it belonged like that a bit. Well, they spoiled us, though, with that. The first week, you were able to watch two hours, and then they put two more hours out on the streaming service. So you got four hours worth of Twin Peaks 
within the first week and then you had to wait almost a month for more and it's like oh my god i, I spread them out i looked and i saw i said oh this they're not going to release them all like this when's the next one come oh no 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 we have to spread this out a little bit <laughs> i thought i was going to do that but then i watched them all in a flurry and then yes it was just sort of it's strange how waiting a month was then more painful than waiting 25 years had been yes yes <laughs> exactly so you're like what is this dougie jones character how is this going to play out and how soon after is he going to snap out of it? Oh, my God. And that it took so long. And I know that's another thing that was just killing people was Dougie Jones. People either loved him or hated him. And it was just it was almost amusing to see the people that hated Dougie Jones. I've heard several people close to David Lynch say that he does not troll the audience, that he does not. He does not approach making art that way, you know, with like bitterness in his heart towards people that don't understand his work or anything. But that felt to me like saying, OK, not only am I going to make you wait, but I'm going to give you this this commentary on modern life with this guy who can literally get through the day and, in fact, fail upwards if he just repeats the last couple of words that somebody said to him and has a basically genial conversation. The fact that everything worked out for Dougie Jones is really an indictment <laughs> of America in some strange way. But it also felt like just a comic character that you can see lent itself to those great moments where he comes to breakfast with the tie draped over his head, which is when I, which is when I fell off the couch. You know, that's when I said, OK, David Lynch, as usual, can give me these moments of extreme silliness that are so such potent silliness and then you put that up against the unsettling stuff but yeah Dougie Jones was so funny to me I wonder if there were episodes where I was ready for it to move on but every time I thought that that story would mutate and we had like Mr. Bushnell his boss becoming this um, you know this lovable character who seems to kind of want to do what's right and and so yeah it was it was it ended up being a very heartwarming storyline in a way I completely agree. I I didn't have as an extreme reaction either way to Dougie as some people did, but um I every time I was like, All right, so when is when is Cooper gonna show back up? Like the Mitchum brothers would be like a, a big part of the story. And there's that scene in the in, with the with the pie in the desert when they're gonna potentially kill him. I was like uh -huh, okay, so keep you can keep Dougie along around as long as you want, as long as the people that keep orbiting him are as interesting as they are. Because I loved Sonny Jim and I loved Janie E. I like that whole. Every time they went to Dougie, I wasn't so so much excited that I was going to see Dougie. Now I was excited that I got to be in that part of the Twin Peaks universe, like because everybody was so fun. Well, when when Janie E. tells off the two thugs in the park, it might be one of my favorite moments from the whole the whole season when she when she says to him that you know. This is a dark, dark age and, and you are part of the problem, you know, and just and, and, and that they're sort of cowed by her, you know, and, and it made you realize, OK, we're not supposed to see her as what I think people had been observing the show and were saying, have they created this kind of shrewish wife that is that is supposed to be this antagonistic character and then they give her this great moment like that where you go no we're supposed to see that Janie E actually has this this inner strength and that in some ways she's kind of cleaning up after Dougie, even though she is sort of blind to the fact that the guy is essentially brain dead. Yeah, I can only imagine what the relationship was like before. I mean, the, when we saw the the manufacturer, Dougie Jones, and I was just like, oh, man, and that amazing, the hair and the jacket. And he reminded me of the yellow man from uh, from Blue Velvet, you know, that, that, that horrible jacket that uh, the cop wears, you know. She it was just an unstoppable force. And damn David Lynch 
for making me see two actors who I really just can't stand in a completely new light, which is Tom Sizemore and Jim Belushi. They were fantastic in this show. Yeah, getting Tom Sizemore to do something totally against type, and he he threw himself into it. That it really did. Yeah, it, it really had an impact. And then and then as far as Jim Belushi, I didn't know what he was doing. I thought it was going to be one of those one scene and done type parts that sometimes David Lynch gets a particularly recognizable face to do. But uh, uh, the way that the, just the Mitchum brothers in general, the way that they played out as these kind of lovable guys was you know just another part of the Dougie Jones plotline that was that was surprising in sort of the opposite direction of where everything else was going kind of towards darkness and despair what did you guys think of the um I don't know what we call them. I've heard them called the the, the Candy Sisters or the Andy Sisters. What did you guys think of those characters? (laughs) I heard a lot of critique of that right away, but I think as the season went along, we saw that they really had their sort of position of power within the Mitchum Brothers organization. But I I can see how in the opening stretches of of what we got with them, it did kind of seem like they were just, you know – you know, ditzy blondes sort of hanging around. But I think that they revealed that they had more going on than that. What did you think of those characters? I was completely charmed by, um, I believe it was Candy, um, right away. There's the scene. Doesn't she throw a remote control at um, one of the Mitchum brothers' head? Just her oh, reaction to that was yes. just so perfect. And I was completely endeared. And I was like, I, I love you. I don't care what you do. You're adorable. And I just thought it was really like sweet. And she was a, she was a bit goofy. And all, all three of them were just, it was a fun grouping. And it was always interesting to see their reactions because they weren't all three the same which i appreciated they all had different reactions to thing like like candy was i don't know shell-shocked in a weird way i'm not Mm -hmm. quite sure but i i did enjoy them uh, a lot and yeah i don't know when they showed up i think people thought that they were just going to be in the background these three women wearing pink but they, they they did develop into actual characters well there's that scene over breakfast i think where they're talking about maybe throwing throwing her out and I, I think it's Jim Belushi who says where would she go <laughs> as though as though and you just right. think what is the arrangement here with these guys you know there were moments where candy was so profound mm-hmm. and the especially when they went out for pie after that scene that that you're talking about Christine where um, <laughs> they were going to kill him and they and he's got that pie and one of them had a dream so yeah but when they go out for pie the next morning or, or later on and Candy like looks off into space and just starts to speak, and it's just is like some of the most profound stuff. And I almost thought that she and Dougie were going to start to be able to speak to one another in almost like their space language. <laughs> that would have been great. Know? I thought for sure too when there was all that discussion of Norma and her pies and how important it was to make the pies with the right ingredients. I thought for sure at one point Dougie would run across one of those uh, double R uh, shops and get one of those pieces of pie. And that would snap him back into being Cooper. I thought for sure that was what was going to happen. Even when he first had that other pie, I was like, this is it. Cooper's Mm -hmm. coming back. And I love that. They just kept teasing us with that. Like things like, you know, him, looking at the badge or looking at the gun or when he like suddenly snaps into action and, and uh, attacks, uh, what was it? Uh, the Mike, the spike, <laughs> right? <laughs> Mike the spike. <laughs> and in that great moment when the arm, like the evil arm shows up and just like, break his arm off. <laughs> 
but just seeing like Cooper back in action or like those little glimpses of him inside of Dougie, those kept me going the whole time. It was this little trail of breadcrumbs, you know, and you and you sensed that it was the same way for the character in a in, in a way. So it made it like, you know, the show was kind of sitting there going, "Come on, Cooper." But you kept seeing all these near misses. And then when it finally was, uh, was it just the name Gordon Cole on, on the um, was it Sunset Boulevard where he says, get me Gordon Cole? That, that was what finally snapped him out of it. When that came on, I was like, oh, my God, this is it again with the electricity and the whole like traveling through the electric wires and everything. I mean, God, the we talked a little bit about um, the electricity from Firewalk with me and that we get to finally visit the the trailer park and see more of harry dean stanton's mm-hmm. character and experience that and realize where that is in position to the rest of twin peaks and then that we keep getting that shot of the number six pole and just the way that the numerology happens in the show and just how we get numbers going through so much of it like even when cooper makes it out from the black lodge uh or from that space station almost that the uh the uh uh, outlets have numbers to them and it's almost like this whole station thing that they have going on moving from place to place and that number six just keeps coming back both at the trailer park and then also in front of the faux laura palmer at the end carrie and i know a lot of people put a lot of energy into the numerology of things a little bit more than I could ever spend time on. So I guess there's kind of like good and bad when it comes to this being shown in the internet age. But, you know, John, you mentioned having to watch it or wanting to watch it, making an appointment for Twin Peaks. And I did very much the same thing. I I pretty much like I rearranged my entire podcasting schedule and was like, no, I will not record uh, at nine o'clock on a Sunday again until they fucking changed the time. And then it became eight. And then it was DVR time, baby. But it's just like, yeah, you have to watch it when it is showing because then you have a-holes who are just going to start spoiling stuff for you as soon as the episode is over or while. Or even just immediately, yep. Or, or even just posting a screenshot of some character or some actor that you had heard was in it, but you didn't know how they were going to pop up. Yeah, it was very it was very spoilable only in that sense. I don't really think that knowing a little bit ruins things for me, but – David Lynch himself was so cagey about anything released in advance of this. This didn't have next week on little clip packages at the end of every episode. It didn't have previously on at the beginning. You know, it's very, uh, Christine, as you said, it really felt like each episode was crafted to be this, this almost self-contained thing, even though obviously it, it was not. Um, so yeah, to me, that notion of, of just having any little detail of it ruined, of, of even knowing what was going to happen in the episode, the episode descriptions were these really, brief poetic uh phrases that would usually be a snatch of dialogue from the episode or i guess maybe in all cases they were a snatch of dialogue from the episode but yeah there was not any information out there before the episode aired about what you were going to see and that really did increase the uh investment i think for me and that sense of oh i gotta see it i gotta see what it is I really could have done without all of the thought pieces that were being written about (laughs) Twin Peaks. I mean, there were pieces about how uh, misogynistic the show was. There were pieces about how anti-Asian the show was. There was this whole thing about because Diane dresses in like these uh, Asian-looking kimonos that uh, the whole show is anti-Asian. And I was just like... 
Wow. And especially that they're writing these things like episode five, episode six, maybe. And it's just like, are you even going to give this show mm-hmm. a chance? And and then seeing people just like, you know, oh, this show is way too boring. I'm out of here. And it's like, okay. I like uh, Peter Biskin of all people is just like, yeah, oh, I, I gave up. This is terrible. This is the worst stuff I've ever seen. And it's just like, wow, have you ever seen a David Lynch movie before? I mean, don't you realize that that patience pretty much is rewarded. You really need to just go with the flow mm-hmm. on this stuff. I want to read, I saw this in one of the many Twin Peaks discussion groups, and this to me just summed up so much of the attitude from some of the, some of the people that were watching this. So if you guys will bear with me, I'll, I'll, uh, I'm going to read this. So it, it is titled A Complaint, and I think this was after the end of the, the whole series. I think it was disrespectful and insulting to the audience of David Lynch to concoct this massive labyrinthine puzzle without any resolution. I do not need to have things spoon-fed to me, but this is ridiculous. I found the show entertaining, but quite some time ago I stopped trying to decipher the reasons for what was happening. Now to see that the show has ended with likely no future season, I kind of feel like I have been duped. This show reminded me of many, in many ways of the show Lost. At least the makers of that show respected the audience enough to attempt to resolve certain aspects of the plot. <laughs> Look, that is that is so off base. Yes. So also, I am a devout Lost fan. That the end, the last season of that show was insulting. This, that's a false equivalency. This, the, there's nothing that you you can't liken these two experiences at all. Lost and Twin Peaks are not on the same plane. So there you go. That's the first thing right. wrong there. Well, yeah, they're not on the same plane. And when Lost, when it came time for Lost to answer all these questions, they just said Magic Cave. And then that was it. Like, you know, so it wasn't as though just because they sort of tied some things up, it's not like the answers to these questions are ever as satisfying as the the mystery surrounding them. And I think with Twin Peaks, you have a scenario where David Lynch doesn't really care if you ever find out. It's famously, he doesn't really care or didn't really care if they ever answered the question of who killed Laura Palmer, which is interesting in terms of what it says about his approach to telling this story. And, and it's yet another thing that undercuts as w- what we were talking about earlier with regards to the story of Leland and Laura and how integral that seems to be to the meaning of this whole piece. The fact that we might not have found out it was him is a little strange. But um, no, I think that that whole idea of watching it for answers or watching it to see the story get resolved. I'm not I'm not sitting here pretending I don't understand the impulse. But as you said, Mike, it's David Lynch. At this point, you kind of know what that means, even if you don't know exactly what that means. But, you know, it doesn't mean you're going to get a conventional ending. And if you look at the way the season, the season two ended with, you know, Evil Cooper. And if you look at the way Firewalk, the sort of really for Laura in a way, but still a very mysterious ending in a way that didn't really satisfy the curiosity you might have had about these narrative threads. I just didn't come into this season at all, expecting it to wrap up in a neat narrative bow in terms of plot i did expect it to sort of leave me with some kind of gut punch and i think the ending we got was a very memorable moment if you're going to leave and never come back you know he he didn't put all the pieces together nice little picture you just told as you were end of season or potentially at the end of fire walk with me it was uh 
sort of even if I didn't know what shape it was going to take. And uh, not taking up the secret history of Twin Peaks, but there's a portion towards the end, um, or, and my correct me if I get this all jumbled, but where the beta is these crews, these things being, you don't know what they are, where they're from, good, bad, if they send the eyes of Stan Goodbye, it's left. And to me, it was like, okay, I need to approach everything this way now instead of looking for so like who in the lodge is good is mrs shelf tremond good is is uh, you know the fireman good like maybe i need to stop looking at it that way and i think that that's hard for some people but that was my big takeaway from you know listening to that audiobook was maybe i need to stop trying to define things so much in this universe because th- maybe they're not meant to be well i think they even I don't know who I heard say this. Maybe it was David Lynch. It might have been Mark Frost said that they even build in like between the book and the and the show. They build in these little instances of unreliable narrators. So you don't quite know what to believe and you don't quite know who's right about one thing or another. And and I think that 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 fits the kind of tone of this this season that we just finished, which is that there are some things that kind of seem to contradict each other, at least in terms of what the timeline is and what exactly are you watching? How how are events in one place transpiring as a as opposed to another another place in terms of the timeline? Those questions I, I see people scrabbling around to answer them, and I almost never find myself thinking that sort of thing when I'm watching it. I always sort of took it almost on a scene-by-scene basis, an episode-by-episode basis uh, outside of that. So to me, I don't often think of all these connections and all these clues and all this stuff until I sit back and uh, you know maybe maybe read a think piece or something or, or just have another day or two to think about it that I start to notice the connections. To me, it always hits me at such a visceral level that – I just have to believe that that's part of the way you're supposed to experience it and that some of these other connections are almost, I hate to say window dressing, but they're just fun things to throw in to kind of pull you through. I, I don't know how much of a of a secret answer there is to any of this stuff. Do you guys think there actually is a, a big question that's not being answered or do you think David Lynch is just kind of putting it all on the screen as he sees fit? I don't I don't think there's this massive revelation that we're all just waiting to get. I just I think whatever we're supposed to get we already have. There's no Rosetta Stone just sitting out there letting us unlock this like telling us, "Oh, the creature that crawled into that young girl's mouth is this and then that she became this person and then this happened and then this happened." I mean that that's garbage. That's that's just not going to happen for us. So we just need to accept that. And we need to interpret things the way that we need to interpret them. We need to make sense of things if we need to make sense of them our own way. I mean, you can look at, say, the Audrey story and come up with so many different interpretations of what was happening with Audrey. And those scenes in particular, you know, if you watch all those scenes back to back to back, they're just amazing. And especially to hear all of the names that they drop in these scenes and how are these people related to things? I think somebody even had a, an interesting theory of she keeps talking about Billy and how Billy wouldn't do this. Billy wouldn't do that. And it was almost like she was referring to Billy Zane and she's referring to the actor, not to the character. And I was like, Oh, okay. That's I've read a lot of stuff about how it, it's the show broke a fourth wall, so to speak. Um, like, like the stuff with Monica Bellucci and her talking about Billy and like sometimes maybe in the show we're actually in our universe or our plane of existence and not the shows. And I think that's really interesting. 
Those scenes with uh, not just with um, with Audrey and was her husband's name Charlie. Those scenes had lots of names dropped in them, and also every scene we got at the end of many episodes where you're sitting in the in the booth at the at the roadhouse um, or at the Bang Bang Bar or whatever that place was called. That um, there all these names are hitting you, and the first few episodes where they did that, I tried to remember and make sense of it but after it happened a few times in a row i thought oh i don't think we're supposed to be taking all this in i almost think this is david lynch kind of laughing at the notion of this soap opera aspect that you might be watching the show for to find out who these kids are and what the next generation is up to and what's going on with them and it was all very integrated and sometimes they would be talking about the same person and it was clear but i I mean i don't know if i felt like that was a little bit of a shaggy dog story on purpose or if we were just supposed to see that life is going on and that these young characters are living their own crazy story that might be very similar to the story that with the with the characters we care about but i sort of quickly decided i wasn't supposed to be trying to follow that stuff i wasn't supposed to be making sense of it so i just kind of enjoyed it when whenever in in one scene they mentioned five characters who you're not sure you you don't know who they are i thought like oh that's that's kind of just one of the jokes of this season is that you're never going to catch up with with everything that's happened and you're never going to understand the full uh you know cumulative effect of 25 years of what's been going on with these characters that whole weird thing when they're in there in the roadhouse in the bang bang bar and talking about like like the girl's got a rash and there's all this stuff going on it's like what the fuck is going on or the the one roadhouse scene where it's the little asian lady and she's crawling across the floor and starts screaming i mean my god it it, i have asked for this and i'm uh, if nobody does it soon i'll do it myself i would love to see all of those roadhouse scenes just cut together because it really feels like that is a world unto Mm -hmm. itself and that feels like the world of audrey and it feels like the world of james too because james makes appearances quite often in this world and that he even gets to be up on stage just like the chromatics and just like uh you know uh uh uh, the nine inch nails and all (laughs) of these bands and james is a little bit out of his league but uh to shelly's point james has always been cool well and then also that that uh walter olkowitz is back uh playing a bartender named renault and we quote unquote, we know that he was killed by Leland back in season two. So it's just like this great thing of him showing up again at the bang bang bar as this older gentleman. Well, I feel like David Lynch wedged in as many of those kind of returning faces as he could. And so, yeah, I I enjoyed that aspect of it a lot. I I was wondering in just in general, what the two of you thought of how overall the characters, the returning characters were treated in terms of getting the sort of Many of them got a grace note or a storyline that seemed to put them in a in a happier place or maybe at least a place that they sort of were destined for or deserved. How did you feel that all the returning heroes were treated by this season of the show? Um, the only place where I was disappointed, and, and that's probably from personal stuff I brought with me, was um, anything with Shelley. I was I don't I felt at odds at loose ends with her, um, uh, which she, I just felt like I wanted her her life to be in a different place. She just seemed to be making some bad choices still. Other than that, I thought it was it was great. I feel like um, some of it was really heartbreaking. You know, we've lost some of these actors and seeing them is is tough at times, but really poignant and beautiful. It was exciting to see everybody. I got excited every time somebody came on screen and I was waiting for people and some some of them never showed up um, because I tried not to look at casting stuff and who was going to be in it. Overall, though, 
I feel like there was a balance of, hey, here's this person, and oh, this actually fits into a larger story, which which I appreciated. It wasn't just like faces showing up like, hey, how's it going? And just kind of walking off. There were things for them to do, which was nice. You're right about the poignancy of all the people who are, are either were not able to be on the show or were on the show. And you, in the case of uh, 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 Catherine Coulson, you saw just how close to death she probably was while she was filming her scenes. And then other people, you just know it was maybe the last scene that they shot. And in the case of uh, 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 Miguel Ferrer, there's this you know, you're so glad that you got to see that character come back and have some of these kind of heartwarming moments uh, with Gordon or um, even with uh, Jane Adams's character, the coroner, the kind of uh, wisecracking coroner that he hit it off with. Like, it really felt like David Lynch was getting all these actors that he likes working with to come back and he was giving them kind of fun stuff to do. And he was almost affectionately like Doc Hayward's appearance was really mm-hmm. just there to, to just just to warm your cockles, you know, the, and, and the fact that it was a scene where Robert Forster is talking to Doc Hayward and it's kind of loaded because Harry's not there. Um, I don't know. All of that stuff felt very sentimental in a way that didn't didn't bog the show down for me at all but it definitely you know there were some times where i it may have gotten a little dusty as i was watching this season of twin peaks it it felt like a tribute to some of the people that aren't aren't here anymore yeah the doc jacoby stuff was a little much for me but i'm glad that then that played into the nadine stuff which then played into the big ed stuff and the god big ed just like eating alone at the end of the one episode that was really heartbreaking. And then I actually cried when uh, the log lady mm-hmm. said goodbye to mm-hmm. Hawk. I was, and I'm getting a little choked up about it right now, which doesn't happen for normal television with me. It's like maybe when uh, Henry Blake died, then I got choked up. But there are very few times where, like, watching a television series, I can get that emotionally invested. And just the sadness in her voice and just Michael Horace's Deputy Hawk, just a wonderful performance. I was so glad to have so much of Hawk in this uh, uh, season because he has always been a favorite. And I love that there's that line that Cooper says way back in the original series about if I'm ever lost, I want you be the, to be the one that to was find a me. punch for me. I was just like, Oh, okay. Let, let's pause for a second and take a couple breaths. Yeah. Well, even that you, you mentioned that last scene where he's talking to the log lady and, and he says to her on the phone, he says, good night, uh, Margaret. And then the, then ends the phone call and then says goodbye, Margaret, uh, you know, knowing that's the last time he's going to talk to her. And the, the fact that they built that connect, that connection between those two characters just over the course of this season, really, I mean, I don't remember, maybe I'm, I'm forgetting that they had some exchanges back in the original show, but it was such a great way to kind of give uh, Hawk something to do. And it was the perfect character for her to be uh, relating to. So yeah, it was really kind of a, a beautiful thing. And yeah, I, maybe the, the, the Dr. Jacoby stuff was a little prolonged, but I did enjoy what a, what a fangirl Nadine was. And I enjoyed the sort of moment of connection between these two oddballs. The fact that you, you know, I was not worried about either one of them, but I'm glad to know that they have somebody uh, to hang out with, you know, so <laughs> Yeah. A bit of redemption for Nadine, who was always a favorite character of mine, but who I kind of resented for, you know, maybe. Yeah, yeah, she did. I mean, not letting, you know, Big Ed go where he should go. So it was it was I 
loved that scene where she just walks up to him. I was like, yes, this is my Nadine. This is this is who I've been waiting for. Um, mm-hmm. So I felt I felt really good about the way that shook out. Kind of like you, Christine. I tried to avoid the cast list, and they released that cast list like uh, well over a year ago. And I really tried my best to not look at it. Though two names somehow managed to jump off the list and into my eyes, and that was Jeremy Davies and Eddie Vedder. And so Jeremy Davies came up pretty quickly, just as being one of those like thugs in the park. I love how quickly some of these cameos were. You know, it's just like some of them were just like, "Wow, that's it." I mean, this guy's a you know an amazing actor, and he's in here for like all of you know like one scene and seemingly playing his character from justified at least it seemed and then eddie vetter like i was dreading for whatever reason like i i am okay with pearl jam i'm okay with eddie vetter but for some reason i was just dreading seeing eddie vetter show up and so like when andy deputy andy was dealing with uh the guy there's that kind of weird subplot where you know uh he goes up and he's talking to the guy and he's like no no you gotta go we'll meet at three and then you see andy on the side of the road just waiting for the guy to show up and it's just like okay this is really strange but i kept thinking that eddie Vedder was going to show up then and then every time i see anybody like i'm just is that it nope that's not eddie Vedder. and then when he finally showed up and to me, there were certain songs in the Roadhouse that spoke David Lynch to me. Like, obviously, the Rebecca Del Rio song. I was like, this is, as I'm listening to it, I'm like, this is a David Lynch song. He wrote this song and or had something to do with the lyrics. And then Eddie Vedder's song, that to me seemed to speak to the show more than any other song that was in the show even though I don't think that Lynch had a, a role in, in writing the lyrics, but it just seemed to really speak to it for me more than sharp dressed man, even so <laughs> more than any of the other songs that were in it. So I was really glad when he, when he finally showed up, it was actually a great moment for me I, that I had been dreading the whole time. Well, that cast list that had Eddie Vedder and it also had, I believe Trent Reznor, uh, from Nine Inch Nails on the same list. And I remember, I, I, I did not know that there were going to be bands performing on stage in basically every episode of the show. And so it did seem like, are some of these guys going to be playing FBI agents? What's going to be going on? But once a, a couple of episodes in, you see that most of the episodes were going to end with a performance on that particular stage. It was quickly like, okay, I'm relieved. I probably won't have to see Eddie Vedder play a character. He'll he'll just be on stage. But it did, it did interest me how they would switch that up. Like you mentioned the ending with Ed. You know, some episodes uh, had a different thing going on under the end credits, and it always made it feel more significant when they would deviate from the from the band playing over the end credits. And that's one of the things that gave that quiet scene with Ed so much potency is that you were used to this sort of bombastic moment to close out the show. And this left you on a really kind of mournful, meditative note. I just liked how much they played around with the format of what they were doing over the course of just this one season. They would establish things and then kind of knock them down. The amazing um, "quote unquote" song ending with uh, just the oh, guy sleeping while they're playing Green Onions. <laughs> favorite. Oh. I could have watched that for like three hours. You talk about a litmus test. That's <laughs> that's one of those moments where it's, if you get that, if you find that delightful, then you're probably locked in for for Twin Peaks. But if you find that tiresome, then you know, then go ahead, switch it off. There were things that the internet did that I just was like, "What the fuck are you guys doing?" Like. 
when they show the the private jet flying to South Dakota and the way that the lights are on the window and the lights are kind of going on and off and then people are like interpreting it as musical notes and writing songs based upon like oh well there's five windows so obviously it's the staff and they're doing all this kind of crazy horse shit I was like okay that's a little much but then there were moments that I would watch an episode and I would say, did I just see what I think I saw or did I just hear what I thought I heard? And then when people would comment it, comment on it later on, it made me feel a lot better. Like the whole thing with the double R when the guy comes in and says, has anybody seen, I think it's Bing. The, the subtitle said one thing and the, the soundtrack said something else. And we go from one shot inside of the diner and then we go back to it and it's different. The people inside have suddenly changed. And I was like, okay, I thought I saw that, but I was really glad that people are doing like screen grabs and showing like, see, this is before and this is after. And I was like, oh, okay. So it's so much so that I was like, this feels like it's actually something significant or the whole thing of the evil Cooper with when he says it was very, very good. It's very, very good to see you again, old friend. And when the second very is, yeah. reversed mm-hmm. like i thought i heard that but i wasn't entirely sure so and then of course El, um, um gordon even comments on that and ties it into the whole finger thing which was amazing as well and then the whole idea of, of gordon and uh the way that he and albert are talking about the blue rose stuff and about you know really giving us more about judy and Zhao day and all this i love that they would go into that and then people actually kind of brought some things to that as well where it was just like oh well you know in chinese it's this and that and i was like okay these are interesting theories i'm not going to buy into 100 percent of them but i was glad sometimes for the internet echo chamber well, especially because some of those scenes were such info dumps. You know, there would be a scene where Gordon and Albert would be talking with uh, with Tammy, and and it would just be, you know, if your head is almost spinning because it was so much of this deep mythology that was being kind of hand waved away with a with a little you know a sentence or two from Gordon, and it is still amusing to me that that's David Lynch casting himself in in a sort of. Um, a Mary Sue kind of character, or at least a wish fulfillment sort of character for himself, where he gets to he gets to hang out with all these beautiful women, and he gets to be, you know, the the the, the dashing FBI agent who gets to save the day. And it, it is funny to me that that's him in this, and that that you know that was something he clearly was really relishing this time around was was playing a re- a really large part as Gordon. That moment of Gordon with the French lady. <laughs> <laughs> That was so special to me. And that was a moment where I was really surprised at how much Albert has changed over the years. Because, I mean, the original Albert, before he had his kind of revelation with Sheriff Truman, where he was just the saltiest person in the entire world, that that whole look, it's trying to think, some of those (laughs) kind of things. (laughs) But him being so patient with that woman when she's putting on her makeup and getting ready to go and just that whole thing, I was like, this is definitely a much more mellow Albert that we have. And you mentioned, Christine, earlier, the uh, the scene of him and the coroner. That was probably one of my favorite moments from this season, just to see Albert so It was very sweet, because when I think of Albert, or historically have thought of him, I think of him yelling at David Bowie, 
in the in the Philip Jeffries scene in Fire Walk with me, like being very impatient, like yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought we weren't going to talk about Judy, and yeah. that's that's my favorite Albert moment. Like that to me encapsulated him. To so to see that character get to be more and do more was a lot of fun. My favorite Albert moment has always been when he says, "I like to consider myself one of the happy generations." That line, I just love it. <laughs> Well, I will admit to a certain cynicism, the fact is that I'm a naysayer and hatchet man in the fight against violence. I pride myself in taking a punch and I'll gladly take another because I choose to live my life in the company of Gandhi and King. My concerns are global. I reject absolutely revenge, aggression, and retaliation. The foundation of such a method is love. I love you, Sheriff Truman. But yeah, his his awakening and his kind of maturity. He was he was a very I don't know uh, heroic character in this in this series of episodes. And at the end of the season, one of my few real disappointments was that he and Cooper did not get any time together on screen. That you did not have a a scene of Cooper, you know, fully back and himself dealing with this new version of Albert. I, I would have liked to have seen that. And I guess that's the kind of thing where you go, I don't know how much they were trying to shoot. I don't know if, if uh, Miguel Ferrer was, uh, was ill. I don't know how that worked out, but it seems that they were lucky to get as much Albert as they got in this season. But I would have liked a little bit of that, just some, just some Albert and Cooper for old time's sake. And I was so happy to see Laura Dern show up as Diane. I mean, that was just because I, again, I didn't know that she was cast in it. So when she turned around and it was her, I was just so <laughs> happy. And just to see her again interacting with these other actors, just to see her when she's back with Kyle MacLachlan, that was so special. And then, can we talk about that <laughs> sex scene? I know it's a strange way to start off a sentence, but. When they come out of whatever world they're in, and now they are, I guess, Richard and Linda, that sex scene was one of the, the of of a show that has a woodsman repeating a poem and murdering a guy on on air on the radio. That wasn't as strange as the sex scene between Richard and Linda to me, and that was just really. I just kept thinking, what is going on here while that was happening? Yeah, and how much of that was Richard and Linda, and how much of that was Diane sort of erasing the fact of her rape by Cooper, who, right. even though we know it wasn't the same Cooper, I think, like I said, I think all these all these possessions from beyond is a little bit too much of an out for these characters. I do think that the version of Cooper that we are dealing with in that last episode is a, is a darker version of Cooper than we've really wanted to embrace before, which is to maybe address that this evil Cooper maybe is not completely separate from Cooper. I mean, I don't know, I don't know what that says to me when I look at Cooper, he is such a straight arrow and such a lovable boy scout that I, I have a hard time assimilating that with this idea that maybe he had these dark underpinnings but i guess if we're going to accept that that all men do it was it was a very unsettling scene for a lot of reasons you know uh, that it was kind of dark sex but it did seem like diane lindo whoever she is was working out some of her some of her issues and when she was done she was done with this man she does you know there was there was no future for her that whatever could have been can't be now no i I really like that take i hadn't really thought of it that way i know that it made me uncomfortable 
Um, but not like in a, oh, there's sex on TV kind of way. Like it just, it felt uncomfortable and it was very unyielding. Like I kept wanting it to end, which I guess was the point. Um, so it was effective, but I was just like, I'm ready to be done with this. It's, it made me uncomfortable from, from the jump. So because it's so elongated, I was, I was all set with it, but I really like your take on it, John. (laughs) But it was interesting that he wakes up and he's Richard, but he sort of knows that he was someone else before he's not fully accepting of it. And I guess since we are kind of, uh, you know, talking about the very end of it, I wondered what, what, what the two of you thought of just what we're supposed to make of that last episode that really was kind of like an epilogue or a coda that is much more about this existential state of, of Dale Cooper and Laura Palmer. It brings them both back to this moment of him kind of forcing her to relive her trauma by virtue of trying to save her and put things right. And, and I kept wondering, are we seeing a loop? Are we seeing some kind of try, try again sort of thing? Because the Richard and Linda th- stuff was was foreshadowed in the first episode with uh, the the fireman talking to Cooper, and he talks about four thirty. He talks about um, Richard and Linda. When did that scene happen in relation to the end here? How many times has Cooper tried to do the right thing and gotten it wrong? I, I don't know if we're really supposed to think that he keeps repeating the same thing, but it did sort of feel like this is yet one more iteration of what's going on. Um, and and what I took away from that ending was just the tragedy of Laura not being able to escape her trauma and Cooper realizing that he's lost 25 years to this. Yeah, for for me, I, that's an upsetting way to think about that. Um I when Cooper walks out of the hotel by himself and it's different it's not that you know very twin peaks you know film ready hotel it's an actual like days in kind of hotel and there's like a highway and it, it he he walks out into the real world I for me that that was really really fed into that the things that I was reading about breaking this fourth wall so that whole end portion when he leaves the hotel almost felt like he came into again our world and that's how I chose to read all that like and and I don't I can't even begin to talk about well what does that mean for Laura not Laura what does that mean for him like who are they in that context? I have no idea. I can't get my brain to wrap around that. But it felt like a breaking of something. Like we weren't in this imaginary world anymore. We weren't on this plane. We are now somewhere else. And with, when they go to, you know, the Palmer house, it's it's not the Palmer house. It maybe never was. And that, again, you know, for me says maybe we're just in a different timeline or, or in a different place. Did you read that the woman in the house is the actual homeowner? I did, and I loved it. Yeah. Well, it's weird, too, the way that she like keeps talking to somebody off screen with that. And I'm like, okay, well, maybe they're feeding her lines. But really, I think more than anything, it's it's an echo to me of when – I think it's Hawk comes to the house and is talking to Sarah. And you hear something going on off screen, and you're just like, what is happening in the Palmer household right now? Because that Palmer household, those weird moments that we get of Sarah alone in the house, like we see her in the very first episode of season three, and she's watching this like nature documentary, and you see it reflected in the stuff behind her as well as in TV, on the, the front. But then that moment later where she's watching a boxing match that looks old, I kept thinking that it was going to be uh, Dougie's boss was in the boxing match. 
But, um, and then that it just keeps repeating the same, like, I don't know, 20 seconds over and over and over again. It's just like, what the hell is going on in the Palmer household? And then that, obviously that scene of her removing Mm -hmm. her face. Okay. There's some, some fucked up shit happening here. And yeah, that, that scene of, I can't remember if it was Shelfront or Tremont, but her talking to, Richard at the end and the way she keeps looking off screen and asking, you know, allegedly maybe it's her husband or whatever, but you know, who owned the house before that's just, uh, that really recalled that moment to me of Sarah with whatever was going on in the house. Well, that's something that David Lynch is so good at doing is mining mundane suburban life for these moments that, that feel very mundane, but also can have something kind of nefarious attached to them that in this world, yes, if someone's kind of yelling back into a a shadowy room and you're hearing a muffled voice, you know, it's, it maybe is not as innocuous as it it would seem in the real world if that was happening. So it's hard not to think of that as a clue that there is some entity in the house that is, that is manipulating things. And I guess we have the sense of, um, uh, Sarah calling out to Laura, from inside the house as they're standing out in the street. And yeah, I don't really know what to make of all that, except that it just seems like something from a nightmare where, where you go to a house and the, it's you know, the people that are there are not the people you expect to see there. And then, uh, you know, then that scream, there's a reason why yeah. they hired her. And I think that's the biggest <laughs> reason. And that to me, when she screams, I mean, I don't know if she necessarily sees something in the house or if it's just that moment that Bob talks about when he pulls the plug on Leland and all of those memories come flooding back into Leland, it almost feels like somebody's pulled the plug on her and shown her all the stuff from the Laura Palmer past. So that, that scream and then Dale Cooper screaming, what yep. year is it? I mean, some people were so pissed at the end of the show, but to me, I was like, that's, that's the way to end this. That why not? Well, I, I wonder if in, a, in an odd way, if Cooper didn't sort of do that or Richard didn't do that to her, you know, that if she is having all these memories flooding back, maybe Carrie Page had sort of gotten away from some of that. But of course, she does have a corpse in her apartment. Mm-hmm. So and she's and she's happy to get out of town. So it kind of makes you think that maybe whoever just the same as Cooper might be trapped in this in this mystery, you know, and constantly trying to fix things that can't be fixed. Maybe uh, maybe Carrie Page can't get away from, you know, the sort of whatever that bad girl thing is that that is attached to Laura. Maybe maybe it, all of her different versions throughout all the different planes of existence that maybe they all are sort of doomed in some way. I am so happy with the way that Lucy and Andy turned out in this episode, in this season, because especially when Andy becomes the man in charge, when they go out to that vortex in the forest and when he comes out of there with the, the woman's body and is just like, tells them what they need to do. I was so happy to see Andy take charge. I was just so pleased. And then when Lucy saves the day, when she figures out how cell phones work, (laughs) and I forgot that that even ties into the longer version of Firewalk With Me, because there's a moment in there where she's talking to Harry and Andy on these walkie-talkies, and then Harry walks upstairs or walks over to the desk, and she freaks out because she can't understand that he was in one place and now he's in another place. And I love that that's kind of carried through 20 years She has years issues later. with the intercom. It's adorable. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, so a lot like the Nadine thing, it's nice because I guess a, a casual watcher or somebody could, could 
look at Andy and Lucy and say, oh, they're kind of like bumpkins or they're they're stuck in Twin Peaks and they're they're never going to get out and they're kind of not the sharpest knives. But I've always loved Andy. Um, and it's it's nice to see them get an opportunity to to be these great characters within this universe that I always knew they were. And now there's this tangible thing you can point to and say, well, no, look, look at Andy, the hero, Lucy, the hero. It's it's great. Well, it's it's one more case of what I was talking about earlier when I was saying about David Lynch clearly have an affection for some of these actors and some of these characters. And it would have been like there's a moment in uh, maybe the final episode where uh, Mr. C is facing off with Andy in the parking lot. And it seems like if ever there was a moment where you wanted to have a shocking death, somebody gets shot in the head. It Mr. C would kill Andy in a heartbeat. You know, it seems anyway that you have this super decent, innocent guy and he's up against this this truly rotten force of evil. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad that they resisted the temptation maybe to go for the shock and the heartbreak of, of killing one of them. And in fact, as you said, yeah, they, they actually are two of the more heroic characters because unlike Cooper, their ultimate heroism doesn't seem like it's overstepping in some cosmic way and, 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 you know, making things worse. It feels like they're just decent people and, and their simplicity is kind of part of that. And I just, yeah, I'm, I'm really, I'm really happy with the way that turned out too. it. It, it kind of left a smile on my face. As well as Freddy with his with his uh, superhero hand, I thought that was just so absurd and fun. But I love that he essentially it felt like David Lynch was making fun of superheroes because he had this really simple origin story and he was destined to do this one thing. And then, yeah, in fact, that's what he's going to do. He's going to hit he's going to hit Bob with his fist. I love that. I, I forgot until I rewatched the pilot yesterday or the sorry the first episode that he shows up with James at the roadhouse. I was like, oh, okay, because I had forgotten that he was even there. I just remembered him uh, having dinner or whatever with James and telling his origin story. Uh, so it was great to see him having shown up again. Oh, and one other thing. I have to say that Lucy and Andy raised one hell of a son. <laughs> <laughs> that, so that was the name. I glanced at that list. I'm not. I'm not going to lie. I saw, oh, there's a list of who's going to be in the new Twin Peaks. I glanced at it, and Michael Sarah was the only name that stuck in my brain. And I was, and I was like, don't think about Michael Sarah. Every time, don't think about him. He's going to show up somewhere. And then there he was. <laughs> it was exactly what it should have been. It was. Oh my god! I kept wondering if Wally was going to come back at some point. Oh man, so good. Yeah, that scene. I was just like, I couldn't stop. Oh, laughing. it's absurd, and it's like <laughs> Sheriff Truman is right there with us. Like, what is happening? Well, this is absurd, and it felt like like we we weren't ours to end. Like this family bubble. And, all right, that's that's who they are, and it was horrible. And and the peaks is just enough. It's not going to be the joke. Have a guy who seems like maybe found some kind of sense, even you know, and it's <laughs> Marlon Brando want to be. I also thought seeing Robert Ford was so great, and I just feel, point out great additions to this. Yeah. He fit in, and again, it's parody that earns. Uh, it, it just jockly with with the world of Twin Peaks that we know. And I also want to give a shout out to his um, wood paneled built in computer monitor that he pulls a lever on his desk and it comes up. I just love that. Just feels like something that I mean that David Lynch must have thought of and be just certain that this is going to be i mean he apparently he does woodworking and that sort of thing so i imagine that 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 was something that he was very adamant about and he apparently was when he showed it to robert forster he was sort of impressed he was saying like pull this lever let's watch what happens <laughs> you know? it was a nice integration of like 
modern sensibility as well, because, you know, Twin Peaks has always seemed kind of out of time, you know, mm-hmm. for everything from the diner and the way that they're dressed at the diner and, and just everybody seems kind of like to exist in this nebulous non-time and then to introduce the hey there's we have technology there look at this is how we get 911 calls and people have cell phones it it felt like a really natural way to update this this thing that never really felt like the outside world was coming down on it the only thing missing was chet desmond and sam stanley oh I, I I waited until the last the up until the last episode. I was like, it might happen. It might happen. I so wish that they had come back, especially Chet Desmond. I mean, I loved Philip Jeffries, and I was glad that he came back in kind of voice, but then also with the flashbacks. And I was glad that they used the extended mm-hmm. flashbacks, the ones that we just watched in that fan edit. The whole "Do you know who this is standing here?" I mean, that just added so much mm-hmm. more to things. But I really wish that Chet Desmond had been uh, somewhere in the Black Lodge or somewhere above the convenience store, like hanging out by the teapot. Yeah, that would have been great. It's amazing how much they used Philip Jeffries, even though poor David Bowie is gone. I mean, that was the, the... one of the saddest things to me. And then, of course, just a few weeks after Twin Peaks wraps on television that Harry Dean Stanton passed away because Carl, I was so glad to see him back. And he was such a valuable player in this. When he takes mm-hmm. care of Shelley, I was Right, so and he's just got this – I mean, I guess we all sort of imbue any Harry Dean Stanton character that we see with our sort of – this our, our love for his kind of hangdog – decency, whatever it is that he conveys. And I, going back and watching uh, Fire Walk with me, I was struck by how much Carl has kind of mellowed uh, <laughs> in intervening yes. years. But I love the scene where he's he's singing the song with his guitar, and I love the sort of the fact that he he seems like he's just there to to observe and to feel sad for for the suffering and and the horrible things he sees around him, and though he kind of seems to absorb those negative feelings. He he was he was yet another character who had a sort of heroic arc to 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 what he went through yeah when he's telling the guy you know i don't want you selling your blood to eat that was a a wonderful Mm -hmm. wonderful scene all right are there anything else we want to talk about twin peaks season three or fire walk with me no i think we solved all the mysteries yeah i think it's everything we're done nothing else okay good good (laughs) all right good all right we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show Nora. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I'm Lawrence. Nora, don't you see? I'm with you everywhere. You look so beautiful. I can tell you anything you want to know about perverts and degenerates. To me, you're an animal. You're a wife, a child at home. You're a dirty, disgusting animal! I'm a man, and I, I will make you feel like a real woman. I know you so well. I know everything to you so well. I know every area. You get these calls often. Do you mean... Do I imagine them hear voices, see burglars under my bed, maybe? Do you get these calls off? Now I'm alive. 
That's right. We'll be back next week, moving beyond Who Killed Laura Palmer to Who Killed Teddy Bear, the Salminio film. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Christine and John. Christine, what's been keeping you busy um, Well, I've been doing a little fiction writing here and there. Nothing nothing huge to talk about yet, fingers crossed. But I'm also still podcasting with my partner in crime, Emily, who I know has been on the show before. And that's the Feminine Critique Podcast. And you can find us on iTunes and you know regular social media places. I totally want to put you on the spot and ask you about your wedding, because I think your wedding happened between our Fire Walk With Me first episode and this episode, and it kind of ties into what we're talking about today. Yes, I had a Twin Peaks-themed wedding. <laughs> oh, really? Um, yeah, I try, I wanted it to be on the day that Laura died, which I know is terrible, but that was a Wednesday, so it was the following Saturday. Um, yeah, and we we had some some fun chevron pattern things and and i had a lovely plaid dress um and we put up have you seen this man bob posters and it was it was awesome <laughs> it was the motivation i needed to have a wedding why, why have a wedding unless you can have a fun one <laughs> i saw some of the pictures that you posted on facebook and it was just amazing that was so cool well, thank you and John, what's uh, new with you, sir? Well, um, I too podcast uh, with my friends Ronald and Steve. We talk about movies and some television in a, in a slightly less informed way, perhaps <laughs> than on this show. But it, it's just kind of like a conversation, uh, and we try to talk about current events as well as some classic films. And that's on Movie Schmovie, a podcast that we just recently released our two hundredth episode. So. You know, with podcasts, uh, you, if you keep making them, no one stops you, and then you can you can say, "Look, we made 200 episodes," and it's uh, all it proves is that you you didn't stop. <laughs> <laughs> the unstoppable track. Right, exactly. Walker. You can't. No, no one's trying to stop us. Um, but you can also find some of the music I've been working on. I had an EP come out earlier this year by a, 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 a band called Mountains Etc., which is my collaboration with some producer friends of mine, and that's pretty fun. And there's more of that coming. And uh, another musical project I've been involved with, Rosemary Stretch. You can find us on Bandcamp. And very soon there should be some new stuff coming out from that project, too. Very cool. Well, I'll be sure to link over to that via our website, projection-booth.com. Thanks again, guys, for being on the show. I want to thank everybody for listening. I want to encourage people to go over to the website, projection-booth.com, like I just mentioned. Go over there. There's links to iTunes where you can read and review the show. There's links over to Patreon where you can make a donation to the show. If you donate, you get access to episodes early as long as I'm not running late, which I am running late a lot lately, especially being over here in Shanghai. I've been uh, pretty darn busy. So just putting that out there. But every rating and every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. What year is this?
drained the blood from my heart Came a message in the dark Offered the hand of a disembodied man While I still had a chance But now it's gone To the bone Blood eyes look back at me Full of blame and sympathy So, so close Right roads not taken The future's forsaken Drop like a fossil or stone Now it's gone Go on I
Enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. This is future war. This is past.